Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea. Over the last few months, uh, Finn and I have been trying to use every other episode of the podcast to explore different aspects of biosecurity. And in this episode, we continue that mini-series by looking into synthetic biology. A lot of biosecurity coverage inevitably gets framed around COVID-19 and thus natural pandemics. And that is without a doubt a really important topic. But in fact, uh, it is likely that the most devastating of threats don't come from natural origins, but instead are artificially engineered in a lab. That is to be even more contagious, more deadly and less detectable. So understanding biosecurity will inevitably also require us to understand biotechnology. But what exactly are the future technologies that we should be worried about? And when might they come about? What steps is the synthetic biology community already taking to help mitigate this risk? And what are its community norms? How can we balance all of these really awesome benefits that synthetic biology uh, continues to bring to the real world, whilst at the same time being respectful of dual use concerns? Uh, these are really hard questions, and when I asked around who would be good to speak to about this, I was immediately recommended uh, Tessa Alexinian. Tessa is the Safety and Security Program Officer at the IJM Foundation, where she works on exactly those questions. Uh, she's also an LB Fellow, and before that, a self-described robot whisperer at Zymergen. Tessa was just a wonderful person to interview. She's smart, articulate, and funny, and really just made my job here very easy. Joining Tessa for this interview is Janvier Huja, who listeners might remember from co-hosting our episode on metagenomic sequencing. Janvi is a PhD student in computational biology at the University of Oxford, where she is affiliated with the Future of Humanity Institute, works with MIT's Nuclear Acid Observatory, uh, and is also an LB Fellow. Janvi was really useful in helping to bring frameworks to some of the more abstract parts of our conversation, and it was just also really fun having both Tessa and Janvi interview each other. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount from this episode. Uh, we start by talking about why synthetic biology is just a really awesome and wild field at the moment, uh, which is often, I think, a part that gets left out of biosecurity discussions. Uh, and then we also spend a fair amount of time talking about what a general culture of responsibility in synthetic biology looks like, which I think helps to contextualize what norms and initiatives already exist before we focus on the very worst kinds of risks. And then, of course, uh, we dive into GCBRs, uh, how we might expect synthetic biology to affect that over the coming decades, what technical projects Tessa and Janvi would like to see in the world, and what people in their early careers can do to help. Uh, as always, there are timestamps to help you navigate around in case it's useful. But without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Tessa Alexanian, uh, and I like to say that I'm working on steering towards nice futures for biotechnology which I mostly do through my work being a safety and security program officer at the iGEM Foundation. I'm John Viahuja, uh, and I work on biosecurity research at the Future of Humanity Institute, um, and I'm also a PhD student at uh, the University of Oxford uh, in the Department of Medical Sciences. And then another question uh, for the both of you to kick things off is, what is the problem that you're currently stuck on? Um, a problem that I'm currently stuck on and very much the biggest problem that I'm working on right now is with um, this group called the Nucleic Acid Observatory that is trying to understand what types of surveillance, in particular, what types of environmental surveillance uh, could be the most useful in providing an early warning um, for a pandemic. Um, and in particular, the thing I'm trying to understand is how useful an environmental system might be in comparison to a clinical system, even assuming the absolute best environmental system we can. Nice. And, and what are you stuck on there? Like what uh, is like one of the problems that you're like currently wrestling with and would love to get to the bottom on? I think one, yeah, probably just that um, getting a good sense of how 
infectious disease dynamics within populations translate to wastewater signals is just very, very difficult because there's a lot of things that sort of manipulate the signal um, and change the reflection of the signal within wastewater. And I wish I just understood sort of all of the parameters in between the disease we sort of has, have as a population and how that shows up in our wastewater. Cool. Awesome. Uh, same question to you, Tessa. Yeah. So a lot of my job, especially it's something that's on my mind because it's been a big part of it over the past few weeks, is doing risk assessment for the synthetic biology competition. So I look at all of the projects uh, that the teams do and try to provide them with advice and make sure that the precautions they're taking in terms of biosafety and biosecurity are adequate. And there are a lot of places where I wish there were a standard for risk assessment that I could simply apply. And, and I don't feel like there is, especially because we're such an international competition. So one example that's very concrete there is how to deal with partial pathogens. So if you have a human cell line, for example, that's a cancer cell line, and it has a piece but not the complete genome of a human virus, how risky is that really? Well, it, it really it is regulated completely differently in different countries. So you know, I have to give people very different advice depending on where they live in the world. And also, from my own perspective, wanting to give them just a, a real well-grounded risk assessment, you know, it very much depends on the details of the project they're doing and whether they're likely to produce infectious virus and, you know, whether the bit of the virus that happens to be in there is a virulence factor that could recombine with something else they're using. And it gets, it gets very into the weeds very quickly. And I really wish that I could just absorb someone else's heuristic because I sometimes feel as a person who's not a biologist but is working in biosecurity, I sometimes feel a little out of my depth trying to evaluate, like, you happen to be using a third-generation lentiviral vector instead of a second-generation lentiviral vector, and it's with this specific cell line. What do I think that means for what your team should do? So more standards for risk assessment, and I would double my emphasis on that question for dual-use risk assessment, which is very unstandardized, and I wish there were standards I could follow. We're going to be talking a lot about synthetic biology. What even is uh, synthetic biology? What should I be thinking of in my head there? The way that I think about synthetic biology is it's sort of an engineering orientation towards biology instead of a science orientation. So I think, you know, scientists are often trained to think about how to discover what's already out there and sort of produce knowledge. And so it's a process of kind of empirical uncovering of what's already out there. And engineering tends to be a process instead of trying to think of what you want to build and then follow this sort of engineering design process where you design something and then you build it and then you test it and then you maybe learn about it and analyze it and then you jump through that cycle again. And so synthetic biology is this field that kind of was founded by some engineers who were looking at biology and sort of squinted at, you know, metabolic networks and thought, hey, those are kind of, they're kind of like regulatory feedback cycles. They look a little bit like electrical engineering principles and circuits and, you know, all the stuff we've seen around control systems, you know, maybe we could Maybe we could engineer biology the way we engineer circuits. And the answer is like, you sort of can. Like, there, it's, it turns out to be a productive way to think about biology and about how to engineer it. And biology and genetic circuits are like full of noise in a way that electrical circuits are, are often not. But it, it's sort of that process of thinking about it kind of around, people often mark the year 2001 as the year that synthetic biology got launched because there was this you know, foundational paper where somebody built a cool circuit in, in a bacteria. And then over the past couple of decades, it's been this process of working up some, you know, standards and engineering principles uh, and tools that sort of let you take this more engineering perspective on biology. Cool. That sounds really sick. And it sounds like quite a young field then as well, right? If it began in 2001? Yeah, it feels, uh, there's been some interesting papers now, you know, in 
2021, there were some interesting papers reflecting on like, oh, what was the second decade of synthetic biology about? And, you know, my, my perspective on that is the first decade that sort of 2001 to 2010 was really, can we do this? You know, can, can we take this engineering stance towards biology? And some big stuff happened in, in that time in terms of the tools that we're able to bring to bear and especially the rapidly falling cost of uh, DNA sequencing has really enabled some, some new engineering tools. And then in the second decade, I feel like the question was almost more, wow, it looks like we can engineer biology in, in kind of new and unexpected ways. Does this mean there's an industry here? Does this mean, you know, we can start putting this stuff out into the world? How are we going to deal with this super powerful technology of like, now we have CRISPR and now we have gene drives and now we have cheap DNA synthesis as well as sequencing. Like what happens now? And I feel like we're just now at the start of this third decade of synthetic biology. And I'm very curious to see what happens, but, but you're right. It, it's, it feels like it's a, it's a new field where many, many things could happen. I think one of the things that's coolest about synthetic biology and one of the reasons I love hanging out with the synthetic biologists is just how excited everyone is about it and also just how creative people are with the technology. I'm curious about like examples that you might have of like times that synthetic biology has been used that you've just been like shocked by or like some of the coolest examples of its use in the last few months or years. Yeah, one thing that I get really hype about is making photosynthesis better. Uh, it's like surprisingly bad given how ubiquitous it is, but a lot of plants use this thing called uh, C3 photosynthesis. And it turns out that Rubisco, which is like my most hated enzyme, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta have, have some enemies in the world. You gotta have some nemeses. And one of mine is Rubisco. And it's just like really surprisingly bad at um, like dealing with mixed oxygen and carbon and like playing its role in photosynthesis. And so there's some plants that have these like specialized compartments in their leaves that segregate the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and make photosynthesis more efficient. And there's been people working on adapting those photosynthetic modifications into rice to make rice that just like has much higher yields in most circumstances. Like there are reasons why not all plants are already using C4 photosynthesis. And it's not just because it's a difficult evolutionary leap. It's also like, oh, there's maybe less good performance in certain, like, I forget if it's in, in wet conditions or dry conditions, but there's it's, it's, there's reasons why everything isn't already using that, but it would be really useful to have C4 rice. And there's also, you know, there's a company called Living, Living Carbon that's trying to do some not quite so complicated photosynthesis optimization in trees um, to uh, sequester carbon way more efficiently by planting forests that grow really fast. And I don't know, this possibility of just like getting, getting into the kind of basics of metabolism and then taking this engineering mindset and going, how can we tweak all of these enzymes and make them really optimized for doing really good things? I, I get super excited about it. Yeah, yeah. And is the like, you know, the way that like natural selection or just things are like in nature is um, that they just haven't been optimized in the way that like humans want to like use these and stuff? Or is this um, like, what's the, the kind of like philosophy there? So sometimes it is that, you know, humans have a purpose that we would like, you know, we would like to use biology to do something that it doesn't naturally do. Um, you know, I think microbes are like amazing chemists. And so there's a lot of things that we can, that we might want to produce using like fermentation and industrial bioprocessing that microbes are indifferent to, but they're chemicals that are useful for humans. And so then that it's kind of this, this process of convincing the microbe to keep all of the genes that you want it to have, even though it's not really useful in, in an evolutionary sense for, for the microbe to have them. I think the other thing is that, you know, evolution is necessarily a random and gradual process. And so there might be like really big leaps that you can make if you can intentionally do some engineering that that will let you access kind of spaces of biology that that simply you simply can't walk to in this in this gradual way because there's going to be some valley of lower fitness that you would have to cross that's just like improbable to cross randomly. 
And I'm curious as to like how much you think that we've been able to actually integrate synthetic biology into our lives and like into solutions in this way. Yeah. So, so there was a cool paper. I forget if it was last year or the year before that was like six synthetic biology solutions that are already changing the world. That, that was neat. And I would, I would recommend reading it. But some of, one of the things it talks about that I really like is uh, this company Pivot Bio that is doing microbiome engineering for agriculture. So, you know, we, we do spray a lot of, uh, sometimes like relatively environmentally bad uh, fertilizers that help our crops get sufficient nitrogen and phosphorus. But in nature, plants are mostly getting those from the microbes on their roots. And so you could imagine re-engineering these microbes to perform better at this like sort of narrow specific agricultural function and then not having to spray uh, as many chemicals and mostly get like washed away in, in the rain. And so that's sort of a practical thing that's already out in the world. It's being used and um, and yeah, it seems like, it seems like an example of this, you know, microbial optimization for human purposes. Mm. And is there anything in the kind of like third decade, uh, or something you mentioned there that you're like particularly excited about like coming? Are there any like, yeah, things either for like industry or just like for, you know, the quote unquote, like good of humanity that you're just like excited about, uh, yeah. Like being on the horizon there. Ooh, lots of things. Um, I'll, I'll just mention a couple, but I really could rant about excitedly about synthetic biology for like <laughs> probably hours. Um, some things I'm really excited about, one is the application of synthetic biology to biodiversity and conservation. So there's a group called Revive and Restore uh, that has been leading some work on genetic rescue. So this is taking um, species that are really close to extinction and at this point like have so little genetic diversity because there's so few members of the species um, that it's starting to, you know, it's it's starting to be hard to to reproduce and, and have, you know, healthy future generations. And so they've been actually trying to um, engineer genetic diversity into, for example, the black-footed ferret, and then kind of produce more, more hardy and more diverse future gener generations of this animal. And that, that I think is really cool. Um, you know, the, I, I don't know if we will hit it in this decade. There's also, I think, potentially exciting applications of gene drives to biodiversity and conservation. And there's, I think, still quite a lot of work to be done to ensure that we don't mess up ecosystems with gene drives. But I, th I think they have a lot of potential, for example, to eliminate like invasive species on islands where we don't have any other helpful way to conserve the the species that that naturally evolve on those islands mm. there's like um discussions of using gene drive for malaria as well right like with mosquitoes and stuff yeah and and one thing that uh i found shifted some of my mindset around this was realizing that a lot of the mosquitoes that carry human diseases are invasive species so you know i, I used to have the perspective of that seems a little sus because you know bats are important and mosquitoes are a big part of their diet and now i'm sort of like ah you know the Anopheles and the Aedes aegypti mosquito, those ones aren't from all over the world, but they are now all over the world because they, you know, enjoy predating, well, being vectors for human disease. But we could, we could just not have those ones in most of the world. And I don't think that would mess up ecosystems very much. Uh, and so I think, again, there's kind of some caution to be done there because, you know, one of my worst case scenarios here is that we have the potential to really like reduce the human burden of disease using gene drives. And then we release gene drives that aren't quite up to par and we create like gene drive resistant mosquitoes or something. Yeah, and, like, that, yeah. that would be a shame. So I, th I think there's, there's a lot of really interesting work being done to figure out how to do gene drives that have limited sort of temporal and geographic spread. But yeah, doing, doing those to eliminate vector borne diseases could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we think about synthetic biology and like, let's say our ability to like engineer 
like organisms or bacteria and the like, how does that compare? Like, like how much control like do we currently have over that? So maybe to give like a particular problem, I think you gave a really nice talk about where you compared bacteria to like transistors or like nor gates and the stuff there. Like what is our ability like at the moment and what are like the main barriers there to, to being able to like engineer more or like more precisely? One perspective, I, I had some interesting conversations with an anthropologist who was embedded at the biotechnology company that I was working at, who was trying to sort of understand how people relate to bioengineering. Yeah, it was, it was really neat. And one thing that she was very surprised by talking to the scientists and the engineers there was how much everyone seemed to take a sort of stochastic or statistical perspective towards bioengineering of like, you're going to try a bunch of stuff and much of it is not going to work for kind of random or very difficult to know reasons. But, you know, if you do enough experiments, you can eventually find, you know, some way to to work with the microbe and get it to do the thing that you want. And I think, you know, one one thing that's very different about microbial engineering, for example, compared to stringing together some some Norgates on a breadboard is that the microbe is is evolving and is changing and, you know, has its own selective pressures and its own goals. And I mean, goals is probably the wrong word to use there. That might be anthropomorphizing a bit too much. but you know, they, if, if you put a construct in the microbe and you haven't given it a reason to hold onto that construct, it will shed it over the course of a couple of generations. And so you have to, you have to manipulate the conditions in which you're growing it as well as to encourage it to take it up. I'm curious as to your perspective and the changes in the synthetic biology landscape in the last few years, not just in terms of the science, but in terms of the people doing it. It feels like SynBio is one of the fields that's been uh, democratized possibly the most quickly. It seems like um, you can do a lot of this science with maybe minimal tools, but also one of the things you'd mentioned was how difficult it is to get the sort of microbe to do what you actually wanted to do. I'm, I'm interested in the sort of, yeah, the sort of tension between those two things of a lot of people having access to these tools to try and create things, but then also it being difficult to actually know what the microbe will end up doing. Yeah, I think... So I, I think things have have spread and become more democratized, and some of that really is just having better and cheaper tooling. I mean, one thing that is almost like hard for me to conceive of, but if you've had you know a sixty year old professor teaching you biology, they probably did their undergrad without access to PCR, which you know, John, I I know you've done wet lab biology. Like PCR is like a it's like step one in kind of any genetic manipulation of anything. At least that's that's my experience. Can, I, can you very I, quickly explain what too. what PCR is? Yeah, so this is the polymerase chain reaction, and I could explain it in detail, but suffice to say it's just exponential uh, targeted amplification of DNA. So it's really useful if, for example, you're trying to figure out if when you tried to you know, connect two bits of DNA together, they've actually connected, is you can, you can use P PCR and amplify just that little section. Right, um, right. So, so of, like the COVID test then, right? Like this is the same PCR? Absolutely. Yeah. Same, same. It's, it's useful for diagnostics and it's also really useful for, you know, trying to observe what you are actually accomplishing in your microbes because, you know, they all just look like colorless liquid or maybe like slightly yellow liquid. So that's, you know, that what feels like a very basic observational tool, almost like the, the microscope that enables molecular biology, you know, that didn't exist until 1986. And then, you know, now it's hard for me to imagine doing biology where you can't synthesize and sequence uh, what you're interested in. So, you know, in 2001, it was like billions of dollars to sequence a human genome. And we that was the first time we did it, right? And then 
now uh, there's a company, I actually haven't read their preprint yet, so we'll find out if how real I think this is, but there's a company saying that they can do whole genomes for, you know, $100, which wow. would be big if true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like, what are the different kinds of groups that are trying to do synthetic biology now that all of this stuff is so accessible? So I, I think one one thing that feels, you know, past five years level trend is more countries introducing a kind of bioeconomy strategy. So I think both as people are wanting to move away from petroleum-based manufacturing and as as there are more real bioproducts going out and being in the world and being useful, I think a lot of countries are going, oh, we should we should have a strategy around this. We should encourage, you know, local bioproduction. I think this has also been made more urgent by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of countries, you know, realizing that if they can't manufacture vaccines or therapeutics in their own country, then during a public health crisis, they might just not be able to import them from other countries. So I, I think there's like a geographic spread on the level of government investment. I think there's also, there is more accessibility in terms of doing like community level educational or certain educational biology or citizen science. So you have people like sequencing the microbes in their local river to see if there's any toxic ones or, you know, doing, uh, doing assays of, yeah, all of the algae that's growing around them. I think you, there's, there's a fun group in California that is the kombucha genomics project. So they're trying to like sequence the genomes of kombuchas from all around the world. Um, and find out what's in them. I think it's still a relatively small community that is doing kind of outward facing rather than kind of educational pro projects in the in the community or do-it-yourself biology world, which isn't to say there aren't some really cool ones. You know, uh, there is a huge group of people who kind of coalesced around this program called Just One Giant Lab doing COVID-related experiments. Uh, there's been the Open Insulin Project has been going for a long time, trying to kind of produce an open source prototype for insulin that would be easy to manufacture anywhere in the world. Uh, one, one group that I think is really neat thinking about accessibility is the Open Bioeconomy Lab, which is a collaboration between some researchers in Cambridge and some researchers in Ghana, and they're trying to produce an, a collection of open enzymes that you can import from Ghana instead of from the UK or the US or somewhere else where there might be like quite difficult uh, import-export regulations. Uh, so I think you see that that increasing local biomanufacturing, and also I think increasing countries, increasingly countries prioritizing this in terms of economic investment and educational investment. And I was just curious as to whether these groups sort of coordinate with each other at all, or whether there's some sort of like overarching structure which joins them, or whether they're like truly independent. I don't think there's a. I don't feel like there's a global, you know, community biology or, you know, bioeconomy strategy. Really, I think some of the coordinating mechanisms that I know about, and I won't pretend that I am an authority on this. Uh, you know, one is there's uh, this global community biosummit that comes together every year that is one of just the sweetest, most wholesome events. So if you if you want to just feel good about biology, I really recommend going to this event. It's, it's so lovely. Um, there's also this increasing movement to have biofoundries, which are kind of uh, biomanufacturing facilities that you can uh, used to run highly automated experiments uh, without having to have all the equipment yourself. And so there's a global biofoundries alliance that is, you know, spinning up and trying to offer coordination and support and resources to each other. Um, you know, there's also strategies for global governance coming out of the WHO, for example. There's, you know, international treaties like the Convention on Biological Diversity um, and the 
International Union for the Conservation of Nature both have recently put out statements or studies on synthetic biology. So I think there are various places where some global coordinating conversations are happening, but it's not like there's like, you know, the board of directors for the bioeconomy around the world that, that doesn't exist. I just wanted to get a clarifying question in terms of like, what does bioeconomy mean? Yeah, I think what people tend to mean there is productively using biology to create goods that people would want. Um, there might be a more formal definition of it, but I, I think that's what people usually mean. And so that's everything from, you know, biologic produced drugs and pharmaceuticals to industrial bioprocessing and biomanufacturing of flavorings or, you know, useful chemicals for fertilizer to some of these more kind of living therapeutics or microbial engineering for agriculture. It's, it's kind of the, the swath of getting biology to do economically useful things, I guess. Nice. Uh, one thing I wanted to tag on as well is you previously, right, worked on like laboratory robotics and stuff. Um, I'm curious just for your like take on on that landscape and what effects you see that in, in terms of like how we do wet lab work uh, or, or science more broadly. Yeah, I, I really liked working with laboratory bi robotics, partly because, you know, I should make it clear that I am not a wet lab biologist. You know, I did an engineering degree. I have been really into biology for a long time and I took some biology electives and I was reminded that I don't like working in the wet lab because I don't have the like mental fortitude for your experiments going wrong for difficult to understand reasons. And then I'm Javi, I, I feel like you're probably not. In the <laughs> yeah. I, this is also why I no longer do wet lab stuff, but I suffered before I left. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Jessa. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm really happy that all of the science is happening and I want to play a supporting role in it. And so being able to be a laboratory automation engineer was great for me because I could help people do biology experiments. But all of my work was negotiating with robots and computer code instead of microbes, which I preferred. The precision can matter, especially when you're doing that kind of microbial metabolic optimization, trying to squeeze like the last few percentage points of efficiency out of the microbes. Then the the as you're screening many many different options for that the tiny differences in how a human pipettes across you know 96 experiments might start to matter so the precision can can start to be really important uh, but but i think you know scale opens up kinds of experimentation and kinds of approaches to biology that that are are simply different like there there is a difference in in kind i think you know one of those is doing engineering that's less hypothesis driven so instead saying less like, okay, I'm going to really look hard at diagrams of all of the ways that this, you know, metabolite could flow through this cell and try to figure out which parts might matter and just go, I'm going to mutate it a lot. And then I'm going to measure it a lot and see if I see any signal there. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, when you're picturing those robots, you should picture a lot of like boxes with glass around them. And some of those boxes contain pipettes that are sort of, you know, picking up liquid and moving it from place to place. Um, other other boxes I have worked with in the lab include uh, a colony picker. So that's where you have you know a bunch of microbes growing on agar plates, and you have a little camera that does some image processing and sees where the colonies are growing, and then can. It was actually the, it's this cool little thing that almost looks like an upside down Christmas tree made out of metal that goes and picks them out and then puts them into liquid. And so that's you know, yeah. If you if you don't want to pick your colonies yourself with with your own little metal. Uh, Metal tool, you can leave it to the robot to do them, and it can it can do a lot of them at once. The box that I found most like I don't know emotionally hurtful 
when I first <laughs> toured Zymergen's lab, right when I, when I was interviewing there, uh, was one that runs, uh, it's called a fragment analyzer. And so it runs the equivalent of gel electrophoresis, which for context, it's something that you do quite a lot to, again, check that the, the changes you intended to make to the microbes DNA have actually happened. And often the most efficient way to do that is to extract the DNA from your microbes and then like chop it up in a predictable way and basically see like, oh, what sizes of fragments are left after I have chopped it up? And, you know, if you have the wrong size of fragment, then you've, you've done something wrong in your, uh, in your genome engineering. And this robot, you would just put your little plate into a slot and then it would analyze 96 uh, and it would give you a graph and a set of numbers of here are all of the sizes of fragments and what abundance. And I was just like, you know, I haven't done that much wet lab biology, but I have spent hours of my life like with wobbly little gels of agar, you know, connected to some electricity, like waiting for my fragments of DNA to pass through them. And this one, it was like, it was like three minutes. You're just like, top, press a button. And then, you know, a few hours later, you get the numbers. You don't even have to like squint at a photograph of it. You just get the numbers of the sizes of fragments. I, I actually almost cried. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, the robot doesn't know how it hurt you either. <laughs> <laughs> so you've both done iGEM. Uh, and Tessa, you work at the iGEM Foundation at the moment, right? Uh, so yes. I am curious just to get a general sense of like what iGEM as an organization is and how it relates to synthetic biology. Maybe Tessa, you can uh, start off there. Sure. So iGEM is an international organization trying to build up the field of synthetic biology. And that mostly happens through this annual competition that includes students doing projects in synthetic biology. And these are students all the way from high school through the master's level, as well as a couple of non-students. We, we usually have a few community labs that participate. And you know the, the central idea of iGEM was, got started in 2004, not long after the very first synthetic gene circuits. And there was sort of this idea of you know, is there something to this engineering approach to biology? And maybe we can explore that by throwing a bunch of student, ambitious young students at, at the problem and see, see what they come up with. And I think, you know, over, over the, the next decades, as we've talked about, you know, synthetic biology really kind of grew up a little bit. And I think the competition has grown up as well. And so now there's much more focus on the idea of figuring out how to do synthetic biology that is able to be done everywhere in the world and is able to solve problems everywhere in the world. And that, that brings up its own set of challenges, both financial challenges, barriers with access to education and equipment. So I, I think the competition is in a different place than it used to be, but it's very much followed this arc of how the field of synthetic biology has developed. Yeah, awesome. Um, and if I understand it right as well then, so iGEM involves uh, these community labs or these like students and stuff doing a bunch of projects. And both of you went through that process as well, right? Like from the like student side. So I'm just curious to hear a bit about like, yeah, what your own experiences were like and, and what you kind of like learned doing it. So uh, Janvi, do you want to start, start with that? Yeah, so I did iGEM uh, as an undergrad student. And I think it was one of the first experiences where I got to really see how the process of science goes. I think the rest of my undergrad had been like somewhat prescriptive. <laughs> um, and doing iGEM, um, yeah, I think to some degree, I also had a ton of sort of autonomy in terms of how the project should go. Uh, and I think that's one of the parts of iGEM is sort of giving students, um, giving students an opportunity to have their hands on the steering wheel. Um, and that was really exciting, but to some degree, pretty terrifying. A lot of the experiments we were doing were alone and unsupervised. And depending on the iGEM group you're in, sometimes you have um, sort of supervisors who are professors who are sort of very engaged in the work you're doing. Um, and other times you're sort of 
to some degree left on your own. I, I think that it was a pretty formative experience for me in terms of um, engaging with science really sort of deeply. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really also uh, really appreciated it. And I think it, it was one of the one of the spaces that I really fell in love with science. One of the other parts was just sort of engaging with a community of people who were really excited about what they were doing. Um, I think that made me really value synthetic biology as a space. I feel like the other sort of scientific fields I've dappled in, there just hasn't been that kind of energy around. Um, I think to some degree, because um, synthetic biology and iGEM uh, are all about sort of like looking at ambitious problems and just trying to some, somewhat like reverse engineer how to solve them. Um, and I think I really appreciated that uh, about that experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Tessa, same question to you. What was your, your iGEM experience like and, and what did you learn? Yeah, so I, I also participated in the competition as an undergrad, and I really relate to what Johnny said about it being very a very inspiring community to come into as someone who, you know, I had not understood the purpose of conferences before I went to the big end of year iGEM jamboree, we call it, which is more of a celebration than a conference, really. But, you know, before that, I, I would go to lectures because I liked learning stuff, but I didn't really get, oh, you might go to a place and find all of the people who are you know, infectiously nerdy about the same thing as you. And that would be really, really fun. And I got that from going to iGEM. And, you know, after going in 2015, I kind of thought, okay, I, I just have to do synthetic biology. This is too exciting. You know, I, I, I don't want to be working away from this community. So it, it was very formative for me as well. Yeah, awesome. And, and what were your, your projects? Like, what did you guys end up making? Um, so um, my group uh, could not decide and we worked on a bunch of water remedi remediation tasks. So there was like 11 of us and we decided that we were going to take on three different projects. Um, so the projects were um, detoxifying estrogen, removing lead from water um, and remove and detecting Legionella. Um, yeah. Very, very rogue. I, yeah, I, I said my pitch was something like we used sort of the resources we had and the expertise we had to come up with projects. And these were the relevant projects, even though they were very, very loosely attached to each other. There is, I think, sometimes in iGEM a bit of an aspect of storytelling where you're a bunch of students who got access to do whatever you wanted in a lab for the first time. And then the end of the competition comes and you have some scattered set of resources and you need to come up with some story about how this is a coherent project instead of messing around all summer. Mm, mm. That, that's really cool. And how, how long are these like uh, projects and stuff? Like how much time does it, does it take? Yeah, it varies. Ours was about um, like five, five or six months. Um, and I think that's how long you're supposed to do it. But I think some teams do sort of start working on it as soon as um, the last sort of year is over. And then some teams take on, I, I think also absorb projects that sort of other groups, uh, they're like professors or other sort of uh, scientific groups within their university have been working on for a while. And um, like, how, how, how would you get a join in? Like, is this like, you know, most unis have like organizations or would you apply it like iGEM directly and you get put in, into teams? Uh, like, yeah, if, if I was like listening to this and I wanted to get involved, like what, what would be the best way to do it? So it's all, all of the teams are run independently by the host institution. And in some cases, in, in some countries, it's not a single institution. So for example, there's a Bolivian team that involves a collaboration of four different universities, uh, which I think is really neat. The way that I found out about iGEM was I went to the engineering team's, you know, open house night uh, and somewhere nestled between, this is in Canada, so in between the concrete toboggan and the underwater robotics team and the solar car team, there was an engineering biology team. And as a person who's extremely interested in genetics but was studying engineering, I went, wait, you can do engineering biology? I'm definitely going to join that team. <laughs> so that was how I found out about it. 
Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And um, I'm curious as well. So we've talked a bit about uh, like your own projects, but like, yeah, like what projects have you seen come out of iGem and stuff that you were like, wow, this is like so cool. Yeah. God, there's so many. <laughs> um, I think last year, one of the winning teams were, was a team that used um, the cellulose that's made from a kombucha, uh, it's sort of like a, a kombucha scoby fermentation um, to try and make leather. But then I think they realized it wasn't elastic enough. So then they also incorporated the use of spider silk um, into developing leather, which is just like so cool. Um, and then, yeah. And then I think there's just like, yeah, I think one of the other purposes of iGEM is trying to sort of flag uh, or develop cool projects that the synthetic biology community or even just other biology community uh, communities at large um, could benefit from. So there's also been like sort of really successful iGEM projects like Ginkgo Bioworks, which is like now a multi-billion sort of dollar um, company came out of like a very early iGEM round. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and and Benchling too, which is this sort of like open source, um, uh, like I don't know how would you describe it? Uh, like I would say like editing tool. Yeah, like Plasmid designs, Plasmid and CRISPR design software. It's it's sort of a when you're working on sequences in the lab and engineering them, it provides this suite of software tools to help you keep track of what you're engineering and what experiments you're planning. It's very useful. <laughs> Yeah, that also came out of iDrum. And yeah, yeah, to some degree, I think, to to make sort of doing this more accessible to other, other people. Um, there is one, uh, one, one way you can participate in iGEM, even if you didn't uh, participate as a student, is as a judge. And some of my favorite iGEM experiences were actually not as a student participant, but as a judge at the competition. You know, one team that I saw who actually ended up winning the high school division that year, uh, they were so lovely, but I was almost a little bit skeptical because they had done such amazing work. And, you know, I mean, first off, they really enamored me because their project was about designing biosynthetic catnip to lure in stray cats into the same <laughs> bit of homework they had designed so they could be, you know, spayed and neutered and then re-released. Wow. And, you know, their project was covered in these cute drawings of cats and they were handing out postcards with cute cats on them, which I, I hope it didn't bias me too much as a dog, <laughs> but it might have biased me a little. But one of the things they did, and one thing that I used to do when I was in iGEM was more the mathematical modeling and, uh, you know, engineering analysis and design side of things, which again, a, a nice thing about iGEM is you can get involved even if you're not skilled in the wet lab, which I am not. Uh, and there is one, their mo mathematical modeling I thought was super impressive. They were doing these interesting differential equation models of, you know, how all of the different metabolites and their co-culture system would relate to each other and which parts of it they could optimize to increase the throughput. And I was like, this is really sophisticated and you are teenagers, you know. I'm not going to say you didn't do this, but I am a little, I want to talk to you more about which parts of this you did and which parts were your advisors. And I ended up going to their poster and talking to this 16-year-old girl who was just so happy to talk about all of the papers she had read and how she had like synthesized aspects of these differential equation models and ways of analyzing them from different papers and like which part hadn't applied perfectly to their project. So she modified it. And I was like, oh, you're just super smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, well, it sounds like a really cool initiative. And I guess, um, Tessa, it sounds at least um, from your experience or something as well that you don't need to necessarily have a background in biology to do it, although I'm imagining like some technical skills uh, like here help, but it sounds that like, yeah, if you are like studying engineering or something as well, this this might be something that's worth checking out. I would also say if you were studying social science, uh, many iGEM teams could benefit from an embedded social scientist. One thing that we try to incent incentivize in the competition is this aspect called human practices, which is 
sort of the idea that you're, in order to do your work well, you should be reflecting on the values that you're embedding in the work and responding to what other people think of your project. So maybe going out and talking to stakeholders, you know, for example, this applies even to fairly foundational basic science projects. We had one team that was working on uh, non-canonical amino acids and expanding the genetic code. And they went and talked to a bunch of religious leaders in their community about, you know, what they thought of this idea of expanding the genetic code, which I, I just thought was a really interesting piece of social science that helped them kind of understand and contextualize how to advance their work. So I, I know a lot of really cool anthropologists who have been part of iGEM teams, and I would say you don't even have to be an engineer. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that, that's a great thing to flag. And um, I guess going all the way back to the uh, beginning of the episode as well, you mentioned, Tessa, that one of the things that you were stuck on was, uh, I guess, like standardizing risk assessments or doing or, um, a bunch of these like risk assessments um, for these like various projects in these like different countries and stuff. I'm curious, um, yeah, like more broadly, like how risk assessments and dual use assessments and the stuff like fit into, uh, yeah, these like iGEM projects and what you've like maybe uh, learned or like would, would, would highlight uh, from, from that. Well, one thing that's really great from the risk assessor's view, which is which is now my view on the competition, is that iGEM teams do somewhat chaotic and ambitious things, and they don't necessarily know what's hard, and they'll try to do things that you wouldn't expect them to do. And this runs all the way from, uh, you know, in 2016, we had a team who got pretty far towards building a gene drive. And at the time, there was no national governance of gene drives anywhere. You know, it didn't fall under their institutional guidance and so they showed up at the end of year at the iGEM Jamboree. And, and I think iGEM had thought that there might be a few more years to develop a gene drive policy before undergrads started building them. But that was not true. Or we had a team, we actually have recently hired someone who worked on this team uh, for our responsibility program. But we had a team that really wanted to put their uh, melanin producing yeast into the stratosphere on a stratospheric balloon to test its uh, radiation resistance. So their their long term goal for their project was yeast that can survive better in space and you know radiation defense. And they happened to have a relationship with a stratospheric balloon company in in Brazil. So they wanted to launch their bacteria into into space. And it was very unclear what the rules are for putting bacteria in space. You know. Different countries manage their air rights differently. Does this count as a release of a GMO? Maybe it only counts as a release of a GMO if the balloon crashes. It was a, wow. it was a really interesting case study. And what, what ended up happening there? Like, were they allowed to, to, to launch it or not? So they did, a, speaking of social science, they did a really interesting project where they phoned up a bunch of regulators all, all around the world. And I, I think they phoned about 40 and heard back from maybe 10 or so and got extremely different answers for different places. Uh, and ultimately we said, okay, you're, you're in Brazil, so you have to follow the Brazilian rules. And we felt like there were especially some really dicey things around indigenous land sovereignty and, you know, launching a balloon over the Amazon. Not all of that land is super uncomplicatedly, even under Brazilian jurisdiction. So in the end, what we had them do was add some, uh, melanin extract to their agar that they were growing the yeast on. And that was kind of a compromise of you're still doing a little bit of this test, but you're not actually putting your genetically engineered bacteria into the sky. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, that's crazy as well that I guess like, again, just to the point of like how this technology is getting uh, decentralized or just like accessible as well, that like this, you know, seemingly like insane thing can just be done uh, by like a group of students. Um, yeah. Like for, for the iGEM project and stuff. That's really cool. Cool and scary, <laughs> but really cool though. I mean, really cool. So it sounds a little bit there as well that like iGEM gets uh, maybe shaping the way that young people approach science, right? And like maybe um, teaches them like lessons or uh, things as well, uh, kind of like later on in their life. Uh, and I'm yeah, like wondering how that 
then in turn like links back to what we we're talking there before about having this kind of culture that yeah is aware of like dual use concerns or uh like safety uh like more broadly yeah so i, I think the way that iGym can have an impact is in a few ways theory of change wise one of which is this you know going to the jamboree or going to iGym events and feeling like you're embedded in a community and then designing that community in a way that that communicates values and and attitudes about how how biology or how science is meant to be done so I remember as a student going to my first jamboree and seeing that a lot of the judges were asking us questions about, did you talk to any stakeholders and find out if the solution that you've designed was actually desirable to them? Or did you just like come up with it in a lab and, and assume that this technological solution was appropriate for the problem you're interested in? Or, you know, did you consider this like possible safety concern about how maybe you're actually engineering, you know, a stronger, a stronger bacterial immune system that could then be horizontally transferred to other bacteria is, is that something you thought about at all? And I think, you know, seeing those fairly like high status people who were judging our project, ask us those questions and, and put them on the same level as questions about, you know, how many controls did you have in this experiment? That, that really communicated a lot to me about what was valued in the community. And I was also having this kind of intense social experience where I really wanted to belong to the community. And, and so I think that kind of, that kind of motivation can be powerful. I also think we try to express our values in how the competition is judged, and we change how the competition is judged pretty frequently as we learn more about how people are responding. So some of the criteria for the competition aren't just like, did you build a microbe? But also, you know, did you do your measurements in a standardized and well-documented way that other people could build upon, which is kind of that like rigorous engineering value. But we also have this program called Human Practices, which is much more about reflecting on the values that you have embedded into your project and responding to the desires and knowledge of other people and considering your responsibility as a, as a synthetic biologist. And, and then we also ask every team to do a self-assessment of risk in their own project. So we have this big safety forum that we ask them to do. Um, I will be honest, I think in, for most teams, there are like two or three people who do that safety forum. It's not done by the entire team of, you know, between four and 10 people. Uh, but I, I still think that is a an intervention. And, and I think probably the most powerful interventions that we have are more the ones where we go to meetups or have calls with students or I email back and forth with a lot of these student teams. And again, try to express this sort of, hello, you're a part of our community. We really like you. The things that we value here are this whole culture where you attend to these issues of responsibility and anticipating the impact of your work and assessing the possible risks of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope we've like really tried to emphasize the um, cool aspect uh, of a lot of like this, the Synbio stuff, and uh, hopefully talked as well about like some of the like really awesome things it might you know like do for you know the future and for humans and uh, like for the planet and stuff as well. But I am curious to like yeah like tackle this like more risk scary uh, question uh, a little bit kind of heads on. So yeah, like maybe to transition to that, I'm just like yeah like wondering maybe big picture what challenges do you guys see that this new sin biotechnology is just like posing for biosecurity as a whole? Maybe John, you can paint some of this, paint some of this out for us. Yeah, I think there's sort of a lot of moving parts here. And as a consequence, a lot of challenges that developments in synthetic biology and allied fields pose for biosecurity. Um, I think these can be split into maybe sort of three categories. Um, there's one in which there is sort of a lot more new technologies and new information. Um, so we just have a better understanding of how biology works um, and um, 
sort of more tools to be able to engineer things in the way that we want to. Um, and that is kind of the second thing as well, which is now we suddenly have new capabilities. There's a lot more that we can do with understanding this new information. Um, the tools that we have uh, can can suddenly sort of um, serve a, m a much wider purpose. Um, yeah, so, so far it's been new information and new capabilities. And then the third thing, um, that um, is sort of a, a, a risk in the in the biosecurity landscape uh, is that suddenly there's uh, many new actors that can contribute to the field because synthetic biology uh, is making everything much more accessible. It also means that a lot more people can sort of contribute to editing um, and writing and reading genetic material, which in many ways is great because we get uh, a bunch of really cool projects. Um, yeah, I also want to underline that even though we talked about some of like really exciting and fun sort of ways to engineer um, biology, there's also a bunch of really concrete ways that this is like changed our world and been very useful. Um, some of these examples are from the iGEM companies that have you know been commercialized and serve sort of um, concrete purposes um, in our world. But there's also this really great paper. Um, the, or, or, or a series of pep papers. One is the new decade of synthetic biology um, and then a follow-up paper which talks about sort of six ways that synthetic biology is used uh, in the world today, which I, I think Tessa mentioned earlier. And I think it's important to internalize sort of like how concretely useful SynBio has been. It's not just a, a bunch of like cool, exciting, abstract ideas. Um, but yeah, uh, that democratization and that creativity that's come as a consequence of um, synthetic biology being more accessible also means that there's uh, a bunch more people who have new technologies and new information uh, that, that they can use that uh, contributes uh, to risk within biosecurity. And to some degree, this sort of exposes us a little bit more to this concept of the unilateralist curse. The unilateralist curse, um, the idea of this comes from a paper by Nick Bostrom, but um, the scope of its relevance here sort of refers to the idea of there being an action that uh, a group of actor actors can take, but the output of that action, um, how valuable it is, is kind of unclear whether it's net positive or net negative. It's sort of unknown to these actors. Um, but this particular action can be undertaken by just one of these actors, which is what makes it um, unilateral. Um, and what's scary here is that with the development um, of tools and capabilities in synthetic biology is that um, uh, individuals can undertake these kinds of actions unilaterally. And Jodhvi, I'm sort of curious, you know, you're an actual wet lab biologist, unlike me. Have you seen that shift even over the course of, you know, from your undergrad to your PhD? Have, have things gotten easier? Yeah, um, I, I would say because I was only in wet lab for quite a short period of time, I, I haven't actually noticed that shift myself. Um, but yeah, I guess like I remember telling someone relatively excitedly about um, the nanopore minion um, and then they were telling me that I was like a little bit slow or something because the smidge ion was announced. Um, and the smidge ion is an even smaller version of the minion. The minion, by the way, is a, um, a sequencing device that means that it can sort of read uh, nucleic acid material released by nanopore. And it's about the size of like uh, kind of a, a chunky USB um, and the smidge ion, um, though it hasn't actually been released yet, is, is about the size of, I don't know, like half of my thumb or something. Um, so I guess like <laughs> this is um, th this is an example of that. But I don't know. This is on such short timescales, like maybe like two years or something. 
Another thing I might throw in, and this this is less on the you know two to five year timescale and more on the five to 10 year timescale of a change, but I, I think governance moves slowly. So this is really relevant for some of the biosecurity laws we have in place, for example, is just a, a big shift away from needing to be concerned about managing physical access to physical materials. So I think, you know, again, more like maybe 15, 20 years ago, I don't think you even have to go back 20, 15, 10 years ago, you could have a set of export controls or you could have a set of locks on the doors of your lab. And and not to say that these aren't important. I think recently they were cleaning out a CDC lab and found some like old vials of smallpox and that's still problematic for sure. But I think some of the previous ways of thinking about how to govern biosecurity were very focused on this idea of someone getting unauthorized access to a lab and stealing a dangerous pathogen. And now I think what people imagine instead is someone engineering something themselves. And, you know, there are all of these services where they could order plasmids and order synthesized DNA uh, from from commercial providers. This whole, and do all of their design, you know, in, in silico, imagine something they want to create and then create it. Whereas I think previously we were much more limited to, oh, perhaps you can extract this one gene from this one organism and paste it into another one rather than, oh, your synthesis is so affordable that you can have this kind of chimerically useful or terrifying, uh, you know, binding receptor or something and just insert it into into your organism of interest. And this this feels like a really big and important shift that is related to the decentralization and the capability, but that shift from having to govern, you know, physical spaces and physical materials to having to govern information and potentially dual use information feels very important to me. Yeah. In some ways, there's like less bottlenecks or something, right? Where you can just be like, okay, as long as we've got like, you know, these, uh, you know, 10 labs or something covered, we'll be fine. To, uh, information is like, yeah, much, presumably much more difficult to um, like keep control of. It also sounds that there's like other dynamic of things are just like moving really quickly. I think um, it sounded like a little bit as of what you were saying there with, um, yeah, before like iGEM having to like, you know, cover all these like different regulations across like different countries and on policies where there just like isn't a precedence yet as well. Um, this sounds like similar, right? To like things in like the digital space or in like the tech space that like when things just like move really quickly and you don't know where like technologies are going to be at in like one or two years, like governments and regulations move slowly. Like it takes time and that creates a lot of like ambiguity, uh, which in of itself, can, can can sometimes be scary and like let things uh, kind of slip through. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's it's very hard to regulate at the pace of technology, and biotechnology is only speeding up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so another thing I think that um, Synbio is sort of adding is because it's like sort of growing as a field, and because it's so, as I said, sort of involved with this like reading, um, writing, and editing DNA, um, is that we're also constantly sort of developing new capabilities. Um, which I think in the previous uh, episode with Kevin Asphalt and Jonas Soundbrink, they they labeled these as transfer risks. Um, and as Synbio is developing, there are certain sort of tools that we can use that are very helpful for other technologies, sort of like, for example, viral vectors um, uh, for sort of vaccine development. Um, but as we sort of get better at editing these things, they're, they're also sort of develop these dual use capabilities uh, with technologies that were never intentioned to sort of... Um, serve a malicious purpose. Yeah, so it's, it definitely sounds that, um, yeah, with, with all of these like challenges coming in, um, the the point that um, 
you know, it's it's harder for like regulation or governments to kind of keep up that like an increasing amount of like responsibility here, like falls to, you know, the scientists and the engineers and like the community, like essentially kind of itself. So I'm curious to like dig in a bit more about like the norms that have like emerged around this. And in particular, Tessa, you've got this, um, I guess, like point around building this like culture of responsible disclosure around Synbio. So can you maybe like introduce that as uh, like, first off, just like as a concept and, and, and what you kind of mean by that? Sure. So I guess the concept here is very much building off what, what John V was pointing to. There are these technologies that you could develop for totally fun and, and or benign reasons, and then they might be useful tools for someone who's seeking to do harm with biology. And I think one belief that I often try to impress upon all of the young synthetic biologists I talk to is that, you know, we all like to focus on the really fun parts of biology, the drought-resistant crops and the spider silk you know, kombucha leather. But we have this history in the field of extremely unethical medical experimentation and bioweapons development. And that's that's also part of our legacy. And we can't just assume that people will use biology for good because they haven't so far, right? I think we've been relatively lucky. I mean, we haven't had a whole bunch of engineered bioweapons out in the world and th that's great. But I, I, I think looking at the history of how biology has been used in the past, we can't assume that it will be only a force for good because... That's, that's not how people have related to it so far. And so then you have to think about, okay, well, if there are people who might seek to do harm with this knowledge I'm creating, is there a way for me to share that knowledge in a way that, that minimizes that? And, you know, I, I used to hope that we could just borrow some norms from cybersecurity here, where I think you often have a case where someone uncovers something potentially dangerous, you know, an exploit in... I don't know, an, an insulin pump or a pacemaker is the kind of closest to biology, right? The medical device hackers. And, and then you need to find a way to uh, get that security vulnerability patched, right? And so you, if you've uncovered something dangerous in biology, is it similar? And I guess the first thing I would say is I've now gone to DEF CON and see some, seen some medical device hackers talk about how difficult it is to get medical device companies to patch the security flaws that they find. So... I, I no longer think that you can necessarily just borrow from cybersecurity because I think often those biohackers themselves are really struggling with this balance of not wanting to create or expose vulnerabilities, but wanting to encourage accountability from the people who have made those vulnerabilities in the first place. Uh, but the other place where I feel like that, that metaphor breaks down is that, you know, in biology, you can't necessarily defend against things. I think in, in medical device manufacturing, if there is a security flaw, it is usually a mistake that someone made that you could then use human knowledge to fix. Whereas in biology, if there's something you know flawed about our immune system, we don't understand the immune system. You could discover a flaw and then have no, no surface area for, for fixing it, right? And so I think some of why this idea of a culture of responsible disclo disclosure where people you know, basically think about how to maximize the good outcomes of what they've learned, minimize the bad outcomes. Uh, I think part of why that becomes so necessary is because there are these vulnerabilities that we can't necessarily defend against. And so, you know, I, I think as you're, as you're communicating about your work, it's, it's important to, to pause and have a think about, about the best way to disclose it. I don't know, John, does that, does that match your own experience? Yeah, I think that sounds pretty true. I, I think the yeah the comparison between cybersecurity and biosecurity seems super salient to me, um, and I think to some degree it also flags why like yeah the fact that we won't necessarily be able to patch every vulnerability like really flags why it's 
like supremely important or something that we like also like it maybe it doesn't always make sense to like try and find and outline them really well um yeah yeah I, I, th I think that makes sense to me yeah I'm actually also kind of curious Tessa if you have um thoughts on like what a good culture of responsible disclosure looks like I, I imagine some sort of like tiered system or something yeah this gets very into my my ideal world for dual use assessment in general where I do think you know, I think in the effective altruism community, you often have a lot of young biologists who are way on the other side of thinking a lot and worrying a lot about the potential dual use implications of their work. And sometimes I just want to, you know, talk to them and say, hey, you don't, you probably don't need to stress out as much as you are about this. You know, you've gone into your, from your first order, highly defensive technology, you've now gone into some kind of third order, like terror spiral about, about how this could be bad. And, you know, I think it would be great to have a, a simple triaging method to say, you know, if your work doesn't hit on these major areas of concern, then, you know, you should maybe check in again at publication, but you probably don't need to be constantly triaging the risk of communicating about it as you're doing it. But then I think there's some, some other work where, you know, there might be easy ways to adapt it to be less risky, but still achieve your project goals. I think one, one, piece of the model that feels important to me is that, you know, science is often more curiosity and exploration and funding driven rather than necessarily goal directed. And you may be able to explore many of the same curiosities or explore many of the same problems without posing nearly as many risks. So I think I sometimes try to adopt this sort of steering framing when I'm talking to people about, about how to deal with this. And I'll, I'll give the example of an iGEM team we had who were outside of normal dual use regulation because they weren't working with any pathogens, but they realized that this bacteria that they were engineering to break down electronic waste could potentially be used to break down real world electronics. Uh, and they thought, hey, that would be bad. You know, it'd be bad if our bacteria digested your car's navigation system or something. And so they, they ended up adapting their project to only work in an aqueous environment and sort of refocus on mining waste and reclaiming kind of uh, metals from from mining, mining tailing ponds. And to me, that's, that's nice because they still got to play with the circuit that they were really curious about that was about metal absorption in their E. coli. I think it was E. coli. And, you know, they, they still got to do most of the experiments they wanted to do, but they were focusing, they had steered towards an end goal that had far less dual use risk. So I, I do think that kind of steering is possible. And I also think sometimes you can do more as a person who is working on something potentially dangerous, you can co-develop countermeasures for it. So I feel like Kevin Asphalt's efforts to develop daisy drives and other forms of limited spread gene drives along with gene drive technology feels like an example of this for me. And then I feel like if both of those break down, if the, you know, if you haven't been able to steer towards something less risky and you haven't been able to co-develop countermeasures because, you know, for, perhaps this can't be patched. That's when you get into the space where you start thinking a lot about how to communicate about your work and, and this world of responsible disclosure. So I, I guess I also think there's things you can do earlier in the research pipeline. I'm also curious, yeah, I guess just for examples of like what that disclosure and stuff then like looks like. So suppose you've been able to take the precautions um, that you are able to like from the actual like research stage, what should you do after uh, when you like come across a vulnerability or um, yeah, some, some other kind of like security flaw here? So I think one thing that, that John V mentioned earlier was this idea of the unilateralist's curse. And I guess I would say one, you know, step zero is try not to be unilateral. If you think you've really discovered something dangerous, 
maybe jump to some trusted, you know, second person or third person to get their opinion. And then there are some examples of, I think, people who have disclosed something but not disclosed everything you would need to reproduce the vulnerability. So in 2013, some researchers discovered a novel botulinum toxin, and they didn't think that the any of the existing antitoxins worked against it. And so they published, hey, we have discovered this novel toxin, but they didn't publish the full sequence of it, so other people couldn't produce it. And they basically said, if you're trying to develop an antitoxin for it, reach out to us and we will send you the sequence, but we won't make that publicly available. So I think that's a good example of you know, still communicating about the vulnerability without revealing absolutely everything about it. And, and, you know, again, selectively, responsibly disclosing just the part needed to draw attention to the thing without, again, maybe quite so many transfer risks. I'm, I'm curious how that, um, yeah, part of, I guess, the selective uh, disclosure or something then intersects in turn with like the open science movement or, you know, this like push towards like making, you know, uh, more things transparent and um, like more accessible to, to people regardless of, you know, institutional affiliation uh, or, or kind of the paywall. And I am aware that, right, there is a difference between like um, how much of the information uh, do you make accessible versus like how much do other people need to pay in order to like access that information. But there does seem to be uh, like some kind of tension there. So, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious for, yeah, how you guys think about that. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a hard balance to strike, but I think there's a lot of science that probably should be open. The subset of science that we care about or that we're worried about the things that may sort of generate direct risks or transfer risks is actually not it doesn't sort of um inhibit a lot of other science uh from being broadly accessible and I, I think that's quite important. And then like as as Tessa mentioned, even with sort of the dangerous information, you can sort of give people the ability to do the research they still want to do and like uh, achieve the same goals they still want to achieve from the outset whilst not doing dangerous work. And to some degree, I, th I think that involves sort of having more of a relationship and mo more cooperation with having sort of proponents of responsible science and biosecurity out there that other that individuals can reach out to if they're planning on, on, on undertaking research that they're, they're worried might be risky or if they want to access research um, or information that might be considered more dangerous and, and is therefore sort of less open. Um, I think um, one of the things, though, that uh, biosecurity and open science really intersect and overlap in um, is this sort of... Um, this sort of uh, behavior of, or this act of pre-registration of research, um, which is the idea of um, sort of before undertaking your research, sort of putting your uh, grant, your sort of like grant proposals um, or sort of outlines of your research on uh, platforms. So sort of kind of like preprint servers, but before you've even done the research or done the paper. And this is good for biosecurity and also good for open science. It's good for open science because people have a better understanding of how um, one might approach a certain sort of scientific topic um, and there's sort of more awareness of what's going on in science more broadly. But it's also good for biosecurity because if someone notices a, sort of a, a risk uh, associated with that, you can sort of approach uh, and, and, and try and sort of figure out what the best way is to resolve that risk. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, a lesson that's been learned over and over in iGEM again, like like Johnny said, is if you can if you can move the interventions earlier in the life sciences research cycle, that's better, you know, if you, because it really sucks if we end up in a world where all of our, all of that steering part of dual use only happens at the publication stage, right? Because then you have people who have applied for grants and they have done their research 
And, you know, that might have been somebody's entire master's degree or a good part of their PhD. And then they get to the publication stage and someone says, actually, this is too dangerous. And in particular, the novel part that makes this worthy of publication in this high impact journal is too dangerous. And so we're simply not going to publish it. So I, you know, I, I think I'm very in favor of some of this stuff that moves that review earlier in the process, partly because I don't want to ruin anyone's PhDs. <laughs> Convincing people or changing people's motivations sounds really, really difficult. Um, and I'm curious, just like in a way that seems really hard to get feedback on, to hear a little bit more about the the kind of work that's been going on there and, and maybe some of the work that you've been involved in. Yeah, it, I I agree. It is hard. <laughs> uh, it, it feels like a very kind of squishy set of things. And sometimes I miss working with robots where like when you succeed, the robot moves the plate successfully. And when you fail, it crashes and you watch it crash and you go, whoops, they coded something wrong there. Whereas this kind of shaping motivations and inspiring people to take a different perspective on their field, it is a lot squishier. I think the sorts of things that I've been working on, um, often in collaboration with researchers in Megan Palmer's group at Stanford, are things around trying to gather data on what kinds of risks people anticipate in their work without being prompted. So what, what categories of risk or even how many people, when asked to look at the project that they're doing for risks, answer none versus answer something. Uh, so we've kind of been using that as a, those kinds of measurements as a proxy for risk awareness and then trying to look at some of the interventions that we're doing within iGEM, like educational workshops or whether people had contact with me or another member of the iGEM safety and security team and, and see if we see any correlates there. Again, it, it all feels pretty inadequate and squishy. And there's a lot of places. One of the things that I'd be most excited to see is better data to understand the risks from life science research. So, you know, I think a culture that I'm kind of jealous of is aviation culture, where I feel like they have a pretty good culture, both of noticing near misses and analyzing near misses and doing lots of postmortems when, when there are near misses. It'd be so cool to have that in biology. I say that not only because I'm worried about bio risks, but because I am hungry for data. Yeah. Why do you think that is the case in the aviation, uh, like industry or in the aviation culture? I think it's because accidents in aviation culture are very big and very upsetting to people. And accidents in biology have overall been less well known. You know, I, I think, for example, there were some accidents in 2014 in the U.S. where the CDC mailed some microbes that were supposed to be deactivated and weren't uh, to other CDC labs. And and that did actually raise a big fuss and, and it led to a, a ban on funding of gain-of-function research in the U.S. for a couple of years. So it's not that there are none of these feedback loops around accidents and and then sort of accountability and governance, but I think they are weaker because there is relatively lower attention and relatively lower visibility. Just sort of on, on Tessa's point as well, I think like one of the broader themes that we pick up in security and sort of interfacing with different sort of um, communities within science is that like in order to make biosecurity sort of or biosecurity practices eff effective or internalized, we need to make them sort of as sort of sort of create as little friction as possible. Uh, and part of that is sort of not having biosecurity practices that aren't super important. I think there's this general attitude that scientists have towards biosecurity um, that is this like, 
feeling of frustration because there are rules like, um, yeah, having lab, like making sure we don't have lab codes on our chairs so that we don't trip. Um, and this is sort of like, I think I heard that rule so much more than I heard any rules on sort of designing my experiments to make sure they were safe. And this was even when I was more involved within the virology community. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's this, when we're sort of designing how to implement biosecurity within science, we really need to be sort of cognizant of the sort of needs and behaviors of scientists themselves. And that is a tat that is also in making sure that we don't tell them that they can't sort of propone their research once they've already done all of it and spent years doing it. Um, but also in terms of making sure that um, in their day-to-day -day lives, integrating biosecurity seems like easy and also important to them. Yeah. And I, I really want to underline what you said there. I feel like we need this kind of scope-sensitive risk assessment and scope-sensitive biosecurity where the stuff that could be really, really important, where, you know, a, a lab accident in transporting your sample of smallpox or, you know, very serious pandemic influenza would be really bad, right? And a lab accident where you trip over your lab coat because it's hanging on the back of your chair would be maybe kind of bad, but not that bad, right? Like the, the scope of these things is so different. And yet, as, as John B. said, the way that we emphasize them in biosecurity is, is not different. <laughs> And for what it's worth, this sounds like somewhat similar to uh, cybersecurity, right? Or like there's some parallels here as well, where um, I think I've like heard it said, right? That you need to like deal with the reality that people have a limited, uh, you know, kind of attention, uh, like budget. And like, really, you just want to make sure that the processes to follow, uh, like all of these protocols are, um, you know, as, as simple and as like easy to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if we can um, maybe dig a bit more into some of these uh, trade-offs here. So Tessa, I think you've uh, like in this talk that we'll like link to in the write-up, I think you like focus on some of these like fundamental trade-offs here that uh, responsible uh, disclosure um, like forces us to like reckon with. And I'm curious if you could like maybe walk us through some of them. Sure. Yeah. The the three trade-offs I outlined in that talk, one I called vulnerability versus accountability, and this was really from paying attention to the the cybersecurity world, where you know as you disclose something and the more publicly you disclose it, both the more vulnerability you create, but also the more accountability you create for someone to jump in and try to fix that problem. And this just seems like a very real trade-off where you want as little vulnerability in the world as possible, and you also want as much accountability and, and you want the problem to be fixed as swiftly as possible. And that just seems like a difficult trade-off and there's not necessarily going to be easy wins. I don't know, maybe you get someone who, uh, was about to release a gene drive and then you talk to them and they realize that they shouldn't because of, you know, these concerns about, I don't know, resistance to gene drives in this population plus global agreement about the acceptability of gene drives. And then they go, okay, you know, that, that worked and I won't do it. And you just had it as a private conversation and no vulnerability was created. But I think that's kind of a best case scenario and that's not going to be, usually you will have to grapple with this trade-off between vulnerability and accountability. And that's, that's just difficult. And I think one of the big reasons to be transparent is for that accountability reason, motivating people to defend against or avoid the threat that you've identified. The other one, um, in the talk I phrased it as uh, risks to the biosphere versus open collaboration, but this, this to me is sort of, you know, we, we were just talking about open science. One of the things that open science has underscored is that we're bad at science often. You know, if you, I don't know if you guys follow Retraction Watch, for example, but there's a ton of just extremely fake data out there or extremely badly planned experiments or poorly analyzed data. And if you don't have 
people's, you know, Excel spreadsheets where the names of genes are getting converted into dates and then their analysis of like human diseases off, which did happen and was terrible. You know, you it, that took an outside inspector to look at that, to recognize that those studies were all off. And I think that to me provides a lot of evidence that there's there's real corrective value in being open and being transparent because even very, very expert people get things wrong. And so I think there's this real tension between, you know, the scale of the risks is huge here, right? I, I work on biosecurity and not, you know, building cool, I don't know, carbon fixation bacteria or studying like wacky proteins because, I, because I'm really worried about the risks to the biosphere from, from biotechnology and from the misuse of biotechnology. But I feel like there's also this, this difficult trade-off where I expect that I am getting things wrong in my own threat models and in my own actions. And so transparency lets you invite this open collaboration and this open critique, and that seems really important to me. And it just feels like a really difficult trade-off where I want us to have good norms, and I feel like we're, you know, at least in the effective altruist biosecurity community right now, I feel like we're kind of, I don't know, in this what I would maybe call an elitist mode with threat modeling, where we say, okay, you know, be careful with that. You could uncover something really dangerous. You know, leave that to a couple of people and then just work on robustly defensive biased, you know, robustly good projects. And this is like, I'm not totally comfortable with that, but I don't have a better trade-off for us to be in. Because I, I feel like this, again, this risk to the biosphere versus open collaboration trade-off is just very real and very difficult. And like, erring on the side of caution seems smart, but I also hope that we get to a better place with it. I, I think I've like sometimes thought about the, like, how we could possibly solve this, like, the, the like problem of the info hazards. Like, if we just sent, like, I don't know, five people into, like, uh, into a room for, like, a year to try and solve this problem, like, how much traction would we make on it? Um, because it, it just seems like, yeah, I think I really agree with Tessa on that the trade-off is just, like, just really sucks that we have to, like, be so exposed to so many, like, epistemic vulnerabilities in order to try and make sure that we don't generate risks. But I think I do agree with, like, the, like, total sort of net value we get out of that um and and that i think that we shouldn't be generating these more more of these risks or something um but yeah i certainly think that we lose insights on um how scientists act i also think that like yeah i guess um a, a little bit we talked a little bit before about um sort of having scientists engage um with biosecurity i think they have the best sort of insights on their work and where it could possibly generate risk um but through sort of not being able to um, sort of like help them engage immediately with what types of info hazards that we might care about the most um, or engage intimately with this, uh, I think it becomes difficult to actually see the risks that we care about the most. The only other consideration I might add around responsible disclosure is that, you know, there's this, there's this open dialogue kind of collaboration, corrective aspect of transparency that, again, I think open science has really showed us is important because really smart people are getting things super wrong all the time. Uh, and also, I mean, the, speaking of the dark history of biology, right, we have had biologists do things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, where they concealed people's syphilis diagnoses from them for 40 years in order to study the progression of the disease. And not just any people, but specifically like African-American men in the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century. And that was enabled because uh, people were really racist. <laughs> and I think that, uh, we shouldn't laugh about that, but, you know, I think we should expect that we are getting things wrong. And I, I think it can be, I think we shouldn't assume that that kind of either anticipatory awareness of what we might be getting wrong will come from within our own community either. 
And then there's motivating people to defend against the threat. We've talked about that a lot. The last thing I wanted to talk about around responsible disclosure is I think one reason to be transparent is to try to, you know, win the race to be the most responsible person who does the disclosure. So you could imagine that you expect someone else to discover the same vulnerability next year. And if you think that's really likely, then you might think, okay, I'm a person who's about to decide not to disclose this. But if I think the next person who discovers it will be even more unilateral than me, then maybe I should disclose it first because I will, you know, take away all of the novelty benefit of this, but maybe partially or selectively disclose it or responsibly disclose it. That dynamic just seems really hard to me. There was a good EA forum post recently about checking if you are actually in a race uh, around some of the development of atomic weapons and, you know, the the atmo- intense atmosphere inside the Rand Corporation where they really thought they were saving the world. And, you know, it sounds like some EA orgs full of ambitious young people trying to save the world and feeling like they have to be in this really kind of, I don't know, secretive, intense mode. And then they were actually just wrong about being in a race and probably made the world worse. Uh, um, so that's both maybe a place where if there had been a bit more openness about everybody's technology levels, people wouldn't have thought they were in a race. It's kind of on that critique part. But also, I think you should be... Uh, I, I think you just need to tread cautiously if you think that the reason to disclose is that you're winning the race against the the next person who will be less responsible. And I, I think my prescription for that is, again, the kind of don't be a unilateralist thing. Ask, ask other people if they think this is also likely to be disclosed soon. So we've spoken a little bit about norms and motivations and incentives from the perspective of scientists. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what you think um, is how useful you think it is for safety to be reliant on norms. Um, And I'm also kind of curious about examples that you might have of good citizens in this space. Like, is there precedence of people standing up and and flagging things uh, in a way that's been useful? Yeah, I, you know, you sent me the question in advance. And at first I was like, ah, I wish I had a good cached answer to this. And then I remembered that I do actually have one. So uh, the, the example I think of, of, you know, someone really proactively reacting to a new discovery. And I think that that is the case where I feel like norms are essential. I don't think, I don't want our safety and security as a society to rely on norms, but I think it's kind of impossible to regulate at the speed of technology. And so I think you necessarily need a bedrock of norms and culture to fall back on when something new has happened that you haven't been able to anticipate. You know, I, and, and I also think you need a bedrock of norms to fall back on so that rules don't get ignored. Because if you think a rule is really stupid, you just won't follow it. I do that with rules. Presumably you do as well, right? Like, like you need some motivation and culture to think that the rule is important. But, but a really good example, I think, of something unanticipated happens, and there's no rules for this yet, uh, was the, the dawn of recombinant DNA in 1972. And uh, one of Paul Berg's grad students, Janet Metz, was giving a presentation at Cold Spring Harbor. And so she's saying, oh, we've figured out how to modify E. coli using plasmids. And we figured out they create a lot of copies of the modified DNA. And this is really exciting. And I think we might actually now try to use a virus to put this bacterial DNA into mammalian cells. You know, this is the technical problem I'm chewing on. Here's my presentation. What do you guys think? And People actually like lightly freaked out and, uh, you know, she called her, so someone else like called their supervisor and then their supervisor called her supervisor and was like, just like, don't use a phage that grows in the human gut as you're doing this experiment. Cause he was, he was going to use SV40 and 
you know, he was like, as you're planning these recombinant DNA experiments, like, please do not do them in something that could affect humans. You know, we, we don't know what happens with recombinant DNA, right? Like this is, this is our first attempt at that, you know, before all of our mutations were like radiating things with x-rays, you know, we, we were doing this intentional splicing, which again, 1972, because modern biology is really new. Um, and, and this led to a whole series of kind of deliberations and meetings, uh, one of which is kind of famously known in 1975 as the Asilomar Conference that actually led to the framework of biosafety levels and risk groups that we still use today in, in microbiology. So that feels like a, an example of a, a key intervention when someone sort of like anticipated a potential harm and reached out to someone and said, hey, you need to be way more deliberative about this. You need to do a, a longer reflection and risk assessment on your plans here. Uh, we need to be more cautious. And it, and it worked. I was just going to ask if we'd spoken about um, w different types of disclosure. I feel like maybe we like have like skirted around it a bunch, but just in terms of like, who do we you disclose the thing to, whether it's like, there's one version of disclosure, which is just like publishing your work. Um, and there's like one tier down from that is like publishing your work, but without the really dangerous bit of information. And then the thing that Tessa's saying about don't be a unilateralist, like be a multilateralist or something is like, speak to your colleagues about this kind of stuff and then see what you should do next. Um, and then there's another version of like, sometimes there are biosecurity boards that you can reach out to. Um, and it's, I, I think for like, depending on the research you're doing, it that will affect like, who you should speak to first about it, but it feels like a pretty safe and low cost thing to maybe always do is like speak to just one of your colleagues or two of your colleagues about it first um, before you like go talk, uh, yeah, uh, one of your, one or two of your particularly biosecurity minded colleagues about this thing first before you like go and decide to publish your work. Um, I think that the yeah, app propones, I guess the idea we spoke a little bit about earlier, which is like having more scientists who engage in biosecurity more wholly. Um, yeah. Right. So we've, talked a bunch about um, synth uh, synthetic biology and why it could be really exciting and also uh, some of the downsides or like risks um, uh, in my face. I think we've been like a little bit vague or kind of like black boxy about what we actually mean with risks and what concretely, uh, you know, we, we're worried about here. And I think in part that is because there is just this whole range of risks and like set of risks that is worth emphasizing, right? And a lot of this just seems to be, right? Like every day from the iGEM project um, that, that you might be doing or uh, the academic research that you might be doing is that it is just like worth really thinking about these norms and risks and uh, procedures and stuff. But then within the effective altruism community, at least, uh, there is also this particular interest in these so-called global catastrophic biological risks, which sound like they're like, uh, you know, kind of a... Uh, different subset of, of these risks more broadly. So, John V, I'm curious if you can like maybe outline uh, just briefly what we mean by global catastrophic biological risks and why they are in many ways different from biosecurity more, more broadly. Yeah, so global catastrophic biological risks very much referred to just a subset of um, bio-risks that um, the world uh, or, or we might care about, um, uh, though our, our focus is mostly on these GCBRs, and, and they're sort of the risks that have the potential to cause such significant damage to human civilization that they undermine its long-term potential. Um, and yeah, therefore it can sort of cause catastrophes and possibly even extinction. Um, and so we really care about the tail risks here. Um, these are the things that are really, really unlikely to happen, but would be extremely bad if they did. Yeah, cool. And um, can you talk a bit about how um, like Sinbi in particularly uh, is like relevant for, for these GCBRs. Maybe Tessa, uh, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure. So I, I think when we 
I, I guess I'll, I'll lay the cards on the table that, you know, when I first got involved in the effective altruist community, I was, uh, you know, I was interested in biology and interested in responsible biology, but I wasn't very worried about this kind of catastrophic or existential biological risk. And, and I still think there were some silly ways that people talked about it. You know, I remember maybe the first official EA event I ever went to, I heard someone confidently proclaim, and nobody's working on biosecurity. And now this was years ago. This was in 2016. But I remember being so pissed. I was like, bioethics is an entire field. Public health is an entire field. What are you talking about, right? Um, and so, I, I mean, I do think that there's a ton to be learned from public health and bioethics and all of the people who are, are, and disarmament, like all of the people who are working on the Biological Weapons Convention, most of them are not, you know, in the effective altruism community, but they're still doing really important work to reduce biological risk. But these kind of narrow, uh, you know, I, like like Johnny said, tail risks, catastrophic risks, I think that synthetic biology is especially important for those because, you know, we have never seen an existential risk pandemic in history, right? Like there's there's only one example of a mammal going extinct from a natural virus, and that's the Christmas Island rat, which is, you know, super isolated island populations are not very representative of the rest of uh, the rest of mammals. And you know, similarly, we've had really really bad pandemics. I mean, I think I think you could argue that the smallpox. Uh, epidemic slash pandemic in the Americas uh, when smallpox was first introduced is catastrophic level. I mean, I, I actually really do think it arrested the progress of a lot of Mesoamerican civilizations, for example, because estimates are unclear, but it's sort of between, you know, 70 and 95 percent of, of the population died. So I, I do think we can point to a, a records aren't great from that time, but it, it's a, I think you can point to a possible example of a collapse of at least one human civilization as, as the result of a disease. But, you know, human civilization overall still progressed. And I, I think one, one foundational, I don't know, I, I don't want to be blithe about that either. Like, it's extremely apocalyptically bad that, you know, we don't have Mesoamerican civilization now because so many people died of smallpox. This is like terrible, right? And I can't imagine what it was like to live in the Americas when like 95% of people died. I'm sure it was like a, one of the greater human tragedies that we've had in the world, like in history, right? So I don't know. I, I want to make sure not to just gloss over how bad that was. Um, or I, I don't know. Sometimes long-term focused DAs get accused of being like, oh, the you know, the past bad things in history, maybe they're just mere ripples. And I'm like, no, no, this was like really extremely bad, like really, truly awful. And, you know, we should we should like sit with that as well. And I think it would be even worse if we totally arrested the future of any humans having conscious experiences at all, right? Or, or you know, really reduce the number of humans that would live in the future. Like, to me, that would just be really sad, you know? I get excited about having kids because I like the idea of there being more humans in the future who go off and experience things and, like, I don't know, smell roses and see sunsets and whatever. And so, you know, I think these, these things that potentially stop human civilization from existing in its current form are really, really bad. And getting back to the synthetic biology point, I think that we haven't seen something like that from natural pandemics. And I think what people worry about is that with engineering biology, you could potentially get into that space of really, really tail risky, catastrophic biological risk because you could have someone intentionally designing something intended to kill most people. And I used to also think that that was kind of a silly idea because truly anyone who would have the skill to engineer a catastrophic pandemic pathogen would realize that they had done that and then not release it. 
And uh, learning about Om Shinrikyo actually was a big update for me because this was the group that released sarin gas on the Tokyo subway in 1994, 1995. And they also had a biological weapons program. So this is you know, a group of at least relatively sophisticated actors working at a time when biology was much harder to engineer, you know, trying to release anthrax spores and their bioweapons program in the end wasn't successful. There's actually a, a quote from the, um, the head of the Aum Shinrikyo cult who said, you know, he wondered if the U.S. assessments of the risk of bioweapons were actually trying to mislead terrorist groups into developing them because they were so hard to develop. But I think synthetic biology is changing that, right? So th this is why this is how you get the, the intersection of synbio and catastrophic risk is that the most terrifying stuff isn't natural and making unnatural and terrifying stuff is getting easier. I don't know. Does that match your model, John B? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that that matches my model. Um, yeah, one of the things I'm interested in is the when you sort of first became interested in GCBRs, sort of recognizing that there was a bunch of people already working in this field, the question of like, what is the motivation for GCBRs? Like, is it just like sort of a long-termism based thing? Or is it also that sort of GCBRs within the broader field of biosecurity, these particularly these tail, tail risks are like neglected? Uh, yeah, I wonder what you're thinking is there, Tessa? I, I think my personal thinking is more neglectedness based than long-termism based. I don't, I don't know that you need to bring in the concern about the very, very far future of humanity to worry about potential catastrophic engineered pandemics. Uh, and I do think that reducing those tail risks is closely allied with public health. You know, I think, for example, uh, standard public health is also interested in early warning systems for disease surveillance of, of the sorts that you're working on, John B. But I think that those early warning systems tend to be less concerned about unknown pathogens uh, that, and, and designing them in a way that would recognize something that's unlike anything we've seen before. Whereas people worried about those very tail risks will be interested in early warning systems that could potentially catch something that is, you know, not a coronavirus and not an influenza virus. Um, so that, that seems like one, one concrete example of a place where the, the priorities of what you invest in vary depending on what kind of risk you're worried about. Yeah, I, I feel like what I posed to some degree was almost a false dichotomy because it's true that this like subset of risks is super neglected and can have a super sort of hor horrendous effect in very much the near-term future. And that sort of also inevitably affects the long-term future. Yeah, I, I feel like there's um, just a, a ton to like disentangle here. So I'll, I'll try and like kind of repeat back to, to, to make sure that I'm kind of grasping everything. So on the one side, I guess on the importance question, I think one thing that was raised here is just scope sensitivity. So, um, you know, there's a huge difference in scope, right, between these sarin gas uh, events, for example, in, in Tokyo, if, if I recall, and then, you know, the, s the smallpox in the Americas, and then, you know, potentially um, a, uh, you know, disease that wipes out all humans and stuff. I guess in all cases, right, there is just a lot of orders of magnitude difference here in, in, in how we might care about these things, um, you know, based on our philosophies or, or what have you. Um, then the thing, right, Tessa, that it seems that you're like really hammering home here is also this like neglectedness side that, you know, there is this like, you know, huge community, right, including US defense and including the, the BWC and presumably including the FBI and then just like public health more broadly as well that care about biosecurity. But when it really comes to these unknowns and these new technologies and the really tail uh, end of things, um, 
this just is much more neglected uh, than, than we might think. And therefore, it's important to work on these things. And then when it comes to like SynBio in particular, there seems to be actually like a couple of things going on here. Um, on the one hand, you mentioned, you know, these things just like are becoming more accessible, which again, that means, um, you know, you might get, you know, terrorist groups or rogue actors or whoever have you just working on these things. Uh, and, you know, this might, you know, be even on the scale of things like sarin gas or like uh, natural pandemics and stuff as well. But it might also be these new tail end uh, things, which, you know, Synbio could be making worse. Is is that roughly right in, in kind of summarizing what's what's going on here? That was an impressively coherent summary of uh, our collective rambling. So thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's what I'm here for. But no, this, this is great. So I, I would love to dig a bit more into detail, like exactly uh, what we're like worried about here with Symbio. So I'm just curious about timelines a little bit here uh, and maybe some of the like specific like shapes of technologies that we're worried about when it comes to these particular GCBR, you know, might wipe out, uh, you know, large chunks or, or even all of humanity here. Um, what, what, what concretely is like going on here and when should we be worried about these things becoming accessible here? Is this like uh, tomorrow? Is this like, you know, next year? Is this a decade away? Is this, uh, you know, 100 years away? Um, yeah. How, how are things moving in this space? Yeah, I can give some relatively formative ramblings on this. I think one of the things where maybe, yeah, one of the technologies that we're concerned about, which is sort of a concrete and very attached to Synbio type of technology is the like, um, evolution of sort of uh, DNA synthesis machines. Um, now we have ones that can sort of fit on a bench top. Um, and there's a world that you can imagine, which is quite exciting, where we have a lot of these sort of DNA synthesis machines on like a lot of bench tops, so that if we ever maybe get to a point where we can sort of create RNA uh, vaccines really quickly, um, there's a lot of other steps other than just the synthesis. But um, you can imagine them at every clinic, so that if sort of people become sick, we like can develop these vaccines incredibly quickly. But what that also means is um, synthesis being much more widely available. And that means sort of editing um, and changing um, uh, sort of viruses as well could be much more easily accessible. So that's something we're scared about. It's also already available on a bench shop sort of level, but you can't, um, sort, not everyone can order it. You have to be sort of an institution to order it. Um, but there isn't any, there's not very much legal regulation um, on DNA synthesis uh, machines at all. And, and we can jump into that a little bit more later. But so like, yeah, one of the things we're worried about is the development of DNA synthesis technologies as a whole. Um, and I, th I think put, putting a time on this is, is quite difficult, but I, I imagine it's going to speed up a lot in the next sort of like 10 to 15 years and become much more accessible to everyone. Um, yeah, we spoke a little bit about how uh, sequencing devices have become so much smaller in the last sort of 20 years. If you can imagine a synthesis machine that's like the size of your thumb, things really start to get scary. Um, and maybe that's within the next 10 to 15 years. I, I don't know, technology forecasting is hard. But then the other technology that I think about um, um, or that I think is really scary, which is also allied with sort of Synbio fields, but are certainly not sort of like dependent or whatever on Synbio fields, is the development of sort of machine learning technologies that are associated with biological um, sort of information. Uh, one of the things that you could think is sort of scary is this idea of uh, matching sequence to function information incredibly well. Um, and so one of the things that I tried to anchor on initially when thinking about this was um, sort of Ajaya Kotra's transformative AI timelines um, and them sort of, I think I think they're now at sort of 2036 or something. Um, and if you sort of make sort of this ability of um, 
artificial intelligence to um, come to really intelligent conclusions really quickly using biological information. That's pretty scary. Um, but maybe we don't even need this sort of like transformative AI development. Like there's probably developments before that that are like very scary. And, and one of them is this sort of uh, sequence to function thing that I was saying before. Uh, to sort of elucidate that a little bit more, this sort of means that sort of having a sequence of nucleotides of biological information and understanding exactly what that can do when it's sort of made into a protein or in its own right sort of functioning. Um, just because that also then means that a, an algorithm can compile that information and design viruses and test a lot of viruses or something. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the other sort of development that I'm really scared about, which I could also unfortunately imagine happening in the next 25 years. Um, and I think the risk that comes from synthesis machines being much more accessible um, is definitely significant, but I'm also really, really terrified of this, um, yeah, of, of the, our machine learning capabilities becoming uh, more significant, possibly more so than I am of um, the sort of uh, synthesis capabilities uh, becoming more um, sort of pervasive. Um, and I think maybe what implications that has is what are we doing right now to try and safeguard these technologies in terms of what are we building in or baking into our synthesis machines to stop people um, from using them maliciously? And then also, how do we bake in these like biosecurity safety things into a field that is sort of like developing very autonomously of us? Um, and I just I don't know how that's possible. Um. <laughs> yeah, I just want to add to that, you know, when when very, I would say near term, certainly less, I would say less than five years at the pace that, you know, machine learning is advancing right now. Thing that I, I don't even have good ideas about how to govern this, which is quite frustrating to me personally, because sometimes people ask me what we should do about this sort of thing. And I'm like, I worry about it. I don't know. Um, is, you know, not just a sequence to function mapping, but also kind of we're getting into a space of a combination of, you know, high throughput automated screening and the ability to have ML algorithms, you know, munch through really large data sets that we can do this kind of hypothesis free bioengineering where we maybe do directed evolution experiments or again, just kind of there, there's lots of new gene editing tools that let you do kind of massively multiplexed edits without a particular goal in mind. And then you could imagine setting up a screening experiment that lets you produce something dangerous and, you know, that's too bad. <laughs> and I don't think we have a good answer for it. This, this was one of the things that was identified. I, I would recommend if you're interested in some, some direct expert forecasting on this, there's a WHO report on, um, yeah, a horizon scan for global public health, emerging technologies and dual use concerns. And one of the technologies that they identified in that was extreme high throughput discovery systems. And again, this is this confluence of, you know, increased lab automation, increased ability to process data, and uh, no idea how to, how to govern it or do it securely. You know, I think at least with DNA synthesis, we sort of have some history of DNA synthesis screening. We have some ideas, you know, there's the NTI has this common mechanism project and uh, the Secure Bio is leading this Secure DNA project. Whereas when I've talked to people about what to do for these high throughput discovery systems, everyone's just kind of like, hmm, it's a problem. <laughs> we got to work on it. Yeah, like one kind of um, maybe more like philosophical question or something is I'm just curious about how you see the like threat landscape of like GCBRs like evolving over time or something. So maybe to draw 
um, some of like an analogy here. Often when I hear people talk about existential risk and AGI, I think it's like sometimes framed as like there being an upcoming crunch period, uh, depending on your timelines or something, where it'll be like really important when if we get like AGI aligned or not. But after that, right, there is then talk um, about getting X-Risk to like a lower level, kind of Toby Ord's like long reflection moment or something there. And, you know, irrespective of like whether that is like true or not, I'm just curious about how you see that kind of um, analogy linking onto GCBI. Is it the case that there might just be an upcoming decade or century where this is just like a really wild field? And, but maybe if we like overcome that, then... Um, we'll have kind of a defensive advantage or we'll have, you know, things as you described there with like Sherlock or um, metagenomic sequencing or something in place that just makes bio risk, at least on this like extreme, like tail risk somewhat um, like safer, or is it just going to continue to be this like wild space with like lots of innovations happening? And it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? With like threats coming up and us like kind of like trying to hit as many like down as we can. I think my expectation is something like an ebb and flow of risk. Like I, I think we could get ourselves into a much more secure place than we are right now. Um, you know, I think if we were really good at making ourselves immune against a really wide variety of threats, that would just like really lower the risk of a bunch of the current threat space for potentially a while until there was a new technological development. My expectation is like so long as we are biological carbon-based life forms, you know, if, if we, if, if humanity is continuing as like biological life forms, which, you know, we could get into like deeper science fiction questions about whether or not that's true. But I, I'm pretty like attached to, uh, life as it exists right now. And I, I, I do actually hope at least, you know, at least some of humanity keeps existing as, as physically embodied life. And I think in that case there, you know, I think if we, it's not clear to me if we had like a perfect understanding of how to engineer life, if we would be in a defense-based or offense-based space. And so given that, I suspect that as we, you know, perhaps meander our way towards a more and more perfect understanding of life, I expect there to be an, an ebb and flow of risk as we bias ourselves towards defense, hopefully intentionally, and then discover something new and go, oh, this is, this is a gene drive. We didn't anticipate that. Oh, no. <laughs> I think this is like interesting to think about um, because the parallel in AI um, sort of being timelines and sort of people's different, uh, people's personal um, drives and agendas changing on the basis of that thinking of biology as something that's constantly growing probably changes your approach to it. Um, yeah, one of the things I wanted to mention actually that I think this um, interview will bring out really nicely is I remember listening to a uh, EAG talk, um, I think from 2017, where someone was uh, comparing biosecurity and uh, sort of AI. And they were saying how with AI, you know, we need to fix this thing and then we can live in these beautiful futures and it'll be amazing. And then they said, with biology, we just want to stop a horrible thing from happening and there's no upside. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, I think this, uh, I think um, speaking to Tessa for the first time, like um, when I did a couple of years ago, I think definitely was like, the, the polar opposite of that, of getting me really excited about sort of biofutures. Um, and that even though the timeline sort of continues maybe in, in a less predictable way, this ebb and flow is also because of our progress mm -hmm. in, in understanding biology. Yeah, I'm just a big biology fan. <laughs> I, there is a, a, a beautiful post actually from one of my favorite biology newsletters, which is called The Century of Biology, that was about this this concept of like viriditas, which really resonated with me. Um, and, you know, 
I can I can read what this person wrote, which I really resonated with, which was, you know, my own personal mission statement is that I want life to flourish in the universe. I view biotechnology as the most logical means towards this end. When I say life, I mean the process that has carpeted our, our planet in cells and flowers and children. Life is abundant, beautiful, generative. I'm talking about veriditas, the constant pressure pushing toward pattern, a tendency in matter to evolve into ever more complex forms. It's a kind of pattern gravity, a holy greening power we call veriditas, and it is the driving force in the cosmos. Life, you see. Like, I'm just really into life, and biology mm. is all about that. Yeah, they should have said that in the talk. <laughs> <laughs> Not to call them out or anything. Right? <laughs> it also sounds like there's like kind of like two responses I can see here kind of like emerging. So one is, I guess, just on like governing um, either like existing technologies or technologies that we see, uh, Tessa, as you said, like on the horizon. And this is just like a hugely like open question. Uh, and then there is this like, you know, set of like creating some of these more like robustly defensive technologies. So John, this sounds like more like your metagenomic sequencing uh, and uh, yeah, stuff like that is when we're thinking about like, you know, interventions or, or, or things that people can be doing as well? Is there like anything else that, that you guys, uh, yeah, want, want to flag um, that, that people should maybe think about working on? Um, yeah, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier about the sort of offense-defense balance. Um, and I think this is something that comes in a lot, in particular when thinking about technical interventions of like, particularly in bio, trying to prioritize things that we're sure are very robustly sort of defense prone um, and trying to trying to sort of like, yeah, as we mentioned before, redesign the technical sort of things that we're looking at so that they don't have uh, the offensive bits, if that's what the sort of original idea had. We've spoken a lot um, in this uh, sort of session about synthetic biology and responsible science. Uh, and I think a lot of that fits into prevention within this sort of prevention detection response framework. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about my sort of like framework for, for all of this. So I think within prevention, I, I see there as being these sort of like three areas. There's like development and then there's access and then there's deterrent where development or differential technology development, which Jonas and Kevin spoke about in the last episode, prevents bad actors from ever accessing technology um, because it doesn't exist, or that's the hope. Access is given that the technology exists, we try and limit their access to it. So given sort of DNA synthesis exists, limiting who has access to it. Uh, and the deterrence is that given that they have access to it to some degree, can we influence their likelihood to employ this technology? And this has two separate parts. There's deterrence by denial and there's deterrence by punishment. Uh, deterrence by denial is this idea of influencing their likelihood of employing this technology because it just seems so unlikely that they would succeed in using this tech that a bad actor just wouldn't want to use a, a, a biological weapon. And deterrence by punishment is this idea of sort of making sure that the punishment seems so severe for even trying this thing that uh, no one would want to try it. Um, and I, I don't know if actually like deterrence by attribution is like its own thing or like fits into one of these things, but is this other sort of aspect of uh, making sure that you can sort of trace back the origin of an outbreak or in particular what group or what actor um, sort of released the, the bioweapon. Um, and, and, and that sort of like adds to this accountability thing. Deterrence by de denial just like really smoothly leads us onto response, uh, leads us onto detection and response. Because to some degree, developing detection and response efforts actually strengthen deterrence by denial itself. By making our detection just so strong and our response so strong, um, yeah, we, we, we make the bar for 
creating a bioweapon so high that it's just not a viable viable option. And I think to some degree that that's what we want to do with detection and response. Um, yeah, so with that framework <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's a great framework. Tessa, I'm, I'm curious if you've got any uh, reactions to it. Oh yeah, that, that really fits with a lot of how a lot of the framework about how I think about how prevention and detection and response fit together. And and I've seen some people really influenced by this idea of deterrence by denial as well, where if you're very worried about these deliberate actors and you think, oh, these are going to be such awful, you know, large scale things that people build, then maybe there's no point in all of this more public health flavored detection and response. But because of this deterrence by denial factor, I think it really shows up for preventing the worst case scenarios as well. The other thing I'd say, getting back to how you prioritize differently, depending on whether you're worried about, you know, general public health versus just these, these tail risk scenarios is, is again on that, how can you do something that's generalized and that works even in, with something that we've never seen before? So for example, you might have, I mean, like we already talked about meta, unbiased metagenomic sequencing that's just looking for, say, exponentially growing sequences in wastewater without any particular search for existing viral sequences. And under prevention, you might worry less about, or sorry, under response, you might worry less about platform vaccine technologies and, and relatively invest more in personal protective equipment that's highly effective or in disinfection technology that just reduces uh, the speed of viral spread, which is in no way to suggest that platform vaccine technologies are not also important. I feel like we are generally underinvested in pandemic response. And, uh, and I think, you know, to get out of a really bad pandemic, we're going to need vaccines eventually. But I think you have a lot of people investing in these really kind of um, broad spectrum pathogen agnostic response technologies. And, and that seems pretty, pretty important. And also like one of the things that you end up prioritizing more if you're more concerned about these tail risks. I'm curious, maybe zooming out um, like a bit more, it sounds that we have like some kind of tools, uh, like broad tools, like in the, in the toolbox here to kind of address GCBRs. One thing at the very beginning of our conversation was maybe more around this like differential tech development and maybe getting some of these like cool defensive technologies out there. Um, then a lot of our conversation here seems to have been like around like culture and norms. Um, one other thing in like maybe other uh, kind of EA cause areas that I've often heard is like this idea of like choke points or kind of managing um, like critical supply um, of things. So for example, with AI, right, there's a lot of talk about like semiconductor supply chains and stuff, or, um, you know, in banking or kind of like finance and econ, there is um, this talk about like Swift and uh, using protocols and, and stuff like that. Uh, is there anything like in the bio space that kind of like maybe resembles or, or kind of like mimics that at all? Yeah, I would say the the backbone of how we're doing biology right now is DNA sequencing and other nucleic acids and synthesis. So you know, managing sequencing and synthesis capacity feels really big to me. There are other material inputs into the process as well that that I think are are worth thinking about. So again, there's these huge kind of central type culture collections. Like there's there's an Indian type culture collection, there's a German one, there's an American one, and people will often source their their microbial strains from those culture collections rather than from like, you know, the institution down the road or something. Uh, but but also that exists too. You know, people are sourcing things in the institution down the road, so that's not the perfect choke point. I, I would say the the big ones are this sequencing and synthesis capacity, which also means controlling the equipment that allows you to do that. I think looking ahead, just over you know the next five years, instead of right right now, I think another capacity that's going to be really important to control is um, both the like algorithms and hardware that allow you to do relatively hypothesis free bioengineering. So these are things like you know 
just doing a massive multiplex directed evolution experiment uh, towards some end um, where, you know, directed evolution, again, is you're like randomly mutating things. And then you've set up some condition that, you know, the cells that have more of the features you want will survive. And so you can do an, an iterated process of kind of very massively multiplex directed evolution and potentially get things that you wouldn't have been able to design rationally. And similarly, you know, we're starting to see emerging examples of, uh, you know, famously AlphaFold last year kind of is an algorithm that can take in a sequence and give you a protein structure. And then there was a new tool that just came out that can take a protein structure and give you alternate sequences that could give you that same protein structure. Uh, and so all of these kind of, you know, algorithmic tools for uh, bioengineering that potentially allow you to like engineer things that you couldn't engineer through like rational human alone inquiry or to engineer things that are perhaps like obfuscated compared to our current surveillance system. That's like, those seem like important choke points. And I think figuring out ways to do maybe some similar responsible access to what we've seen around uh, powerful uh, algorithms in other contexts where it's like, you can use this, but you need to get permission first. Uh, seems like probably a good idea. Yeah, I also wanted to note that um, on this sort of prevention detection response thing, um, unfortunately, it seems like the things that are most tractable to some degree do become detection and response, even though prevention is something that we would probably want to prioritize, but is maybe therefore inherently of, in its nature, just like more difficult to, to see outcomes in. So I think a lot of, uh, a bunch of at least, the, det the technical sort of um, concrete projects have sort of laid around detection and response. I'm wondering if there's like anything in particular that you're like really excited uh, to, to see or would maybe like want, want the uh, listeners to uh, go check out or potentially like think about like getting involved uh, as well. And I think given that you both uh, have maybe more of a technical background in, in some of these things as well, uh, especially curious for, for some of those recommendations. Yeah. And one of these projects I'm interested in is kind of related to some of my own work. Um, within detection uh, i think even um, i think people have spoken uh, a lot about you mentioned the swiss cheese model this is also applied in detection when thinking about the different layers of surveillance sort of clinical sentinel and environmental and i'm focusing i'm focusing on like sort of really trying to characterize environmental surveillance deeply particularly looking at sort of wastewater stuff but i think there's a bunch of different sort of areas which we haven't spent a lot of time characterizing one of these things is things like um what would really good HVAC or like sort of this is sort of like heating and air conditioning systems and ventilation systems, um, what would really good surveillance in them look like? One in terms of like what kinds of sort of detection systems or techniques or like what kind of like just collection techniques would we need to get that like biological information out of that um, sort of system as well as like what is a good pipeline for assessing this? And then also sort of modeling how successful are we likely to be with sort of a range of different pathogens if we had like really robust HVAC sort of systems? Um, another one is like, we thought a little bit about uh, sentinel surveillance and we talk about sort of uh, sent uh, sentinel like um, person level surveillance. So sampling a person uh, rather than sampling the environment um, in sort of airports and BSL-4 labs. But again, I think we haven't really seen much modeling um, or efforts sort of in this area to see sort of how successful this would be uh, in, un, under sort of a range of threat portfolios. And I think understanding the sort of um, the success of these different types of detection uh, would give us a better idea of sort of like the kind of final early warning system we would need uh, in order to patch all those holes in the cheese.
Um, so yeah, those are some examples of detection work I'm excited about. Yeah, awesome, Tessa. What what about you? Well, there's, I really do think there's a lot of uh, work to be done. I guess uh, we're focusing on technical, but I'm going to sneak in a few pitches for non-technical work uh, because we've been talking so much about prevention. I think one thing we've seen in the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and in general in the world is that we a lot of whether our systems are able to respond to an emerging pandemic comes down to the regulatory and government infrastructure. And I feel really excited about people working on, you know, for example, creating new rules for emergency authorization or for the allowability of human challenge trials or other things like that, where when we are in a pandemic, we can shift to a more emergency footing with our regulation because the, the cost of inaction are much higher than during a non-outbreak scenario. So that's, that's, you know, if you're more of a lawyer type person, I'm going to throw in my pitch for this seems like something really important to work on. For, uh, for concrete technical biosecurity project ideas, uh, a lot of people have written up really great lists of these. Uh, I recently wrote an EA forum post, which was just my list of all of these lists, which I would uh, encourage you to check out because I, hopefully you walk away from it also feeling uh, kind of inspired. You know, I... One thing that is maybe kind of nice about being in biosecurity is that there are a bunch of really concrete projects that we can work on. And I guess I know a lot of people who are really concerned about the risks from advanced artificial intelligence and also having kind of a difficult time because they're not exactly sure which interventions are tractable and which will and how to actually reduce the risk. And I think in biosecurity, we sort of have this advantage that there are a bunch of technical projects that seem quite robustly good that we can do. So these are developing platform vaccines. These are, you know, figuring out responsible access to genetic sequences. And, you know, what if all journals could have an API that just manages access to this digital information in a responsible way? You know, what if we had needle-free vaccine delivery? What if we developed DNA vaccines that are stable without a cold chain? You know, I, I just, I could go on for a long time because there truly are about, I don't know, 40 or 50 uh ideas on this list of list of lists, but there's really quite a lot to do. Yeah, yeah. No, and we'll we'll definitely link the the list of lists uh in our write-up. I guess there's also a chance to flag uh Jandu, you've also made a reading list, right? For people who might want to uh get up to speed uh and and read um yeah like more about biosecurity and, and GCPRs more broadly. Can you quickly yeah maybe maybe plug that? We're hoping to actually have it more in the format of um a fellowship um or sort of a workshop where um uh, which is run um, right, uh, which is run by the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative, and the the aim with this is to sort of create a space for people who are interested in biosecurity but haven't had the opportunity to speak to a lot of people who have spent time thinking about biosecurity or haven't had access to sort of yeah these like thoughts and memes that sort of sort of are floating around the community but aren't written down very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to have it as kind of a replacement for that sort of an environment to both do a, a bunch of reading that I think is really important and is inspired by Tessa's reading list, uh, Chris Baker Lee's reading list, and Greg Lewis's reading list, um, as well as inputs from a bunch of other people. Yeah, and so the eventual goal is that you have space to do these readings as well as discuss your cruxes and what makes sense to you and what doesn't make sense to you. Awesome. Yeah, I guess like the last question I, I just then um, want to ask maybe before we we start wrapping things up is you're both right. If I 
may describe you as such, like early, mid-career uh, people who are just in this like field that seems like it's like rapidly changing and there's like so much stuff to do. And I'm just, yeah, like curious how you guys are thinking and like planning you know, your own careers and, and, and thinking about like having this impact and, um, right. Like making some of these trade-offs and like specializing in like more technical spaces or in like certain aspects of this, when this field just seems to be changing, uh, yeah, like all, all the time. Yeah. I feel stressed out about this question, um, in my own life. And I suppose one way that I reduce my stress levels in thinking and planning my own impact is by viewing a lot of things as experiments. This is definitely how I viewed starting to work at iGen. So, you know, for context, before I worked at iGEM, I was an engineer, an automation engineer at a synthetic biology startup, right? So I was working in industry. I was in the lab, not every day, but pretty regularly. Um, you know, I had way more of a sense of the pulse of what is it like to do kind of cutting edge synthetic biology work? But I was not spending much of my time working on biosecurity full time. Uh, you know, all of my all of my biosecurity impact was coming through volunteering. And I was feeling like that was maybe not not a good impact trade off. Uh, and so I kind of went into this much more risk assessment-y, community building-y, meta-educational role at iGEM. And, you know, I, I think I was only able to make that decision because I told myself that this is an experiment that I'm running to see if I am happy doing non-technical work and to see if, you know, I'm any good at doing this whole, I don't know, prevention-focused biosecurity type stuff. And I think that one question that I have found very useful when other people have asked it to me is you know, letting yourself think on a career scale about your own impact as well. I think that I have gotten better at thinking about my impact less on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I used to really, really stress myself out being like, wow, I had an unproductive day today, so I guess I'm a terrible person. Um, and I think, you know, now I'm able to zoom out a little bit more and go, okay, well, it's all about prioritizing more on the scale of months to weeks. Uh, you know, it's less about, did you manage to squeeze the, you know, the nth hour of productivity out of the specific day? You can have weekends that are relaxing, you know, that, that sort of mindset. And I think recently I've been orienting more towards, no, but truly, if I think about my greatest impact in my career is probably not what I'm doing right now, but what I might be doing in five or 10 years. And so what are the kinds of aptitudes I want to build up for that? So Something I've been thinking about, for example, is that, you know, maybe in the future, I would want to be in a position where I'm like founding or running an organization, which means that I need to pick up more skills in organizational management and, and people management, which are things that I'm getting a little bit of my current job, but have been, you know, orienting my tasks towards that more than I had been previously. So I guess, yeah, field is rapidly changing, but start thinking about what aptitudes you might want to have and let yourself chill out about your job on the scale and your work on the scale of days, but think about your priorities over the scale of, you know, months for projects and years for your career is, I guess, my concrete advice. I think that advice gave me some internal peace. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I also, what Tessa said about sort of doing experiments and sort of running trials on um, the work that you enjoy and the work that you think you're, you're well-suited for as well as that, like, sort of is well-aligned with your sort of, um, yeah, like... Um, uh, moral compass or something just that yeah, seems seems important um that that you like you give yourself space to do those trials before sort of really jumping into um jobs that are big commitments because I, I sometimes it can be hard to sort of step away from those um especially if you haven't framed it as a trial um 
Yeah, I would say that one of the things that I found really useful when I first got into biosecurity has just been like trying to have a lot of calls with people and see what they think about things and being really unafraid to ask them questions um, that I, and that I, to be clear, I wasn't unafraid. I was very afraid, uh, but I found that I became sort of, I got the most use out of the calls when I sort of internalized that like the best use of both of our time is just to just like be honest about the things that I'm uncertain about. Um, and yeah, I think I would really encourage people to do this, um, to just like try and have calls with people in biosecurity or in whatever field they're interested in or subfield they're interested in, um, and try and sort of get a good sense of the things they're unsure about before the call and sort of address those. Um, and I, I think I found that, yeah, often the most useful sort of like bumps in my career have just been through sort of like conversations that have been guiding towards, um, yeah, towards opportunities that have seemed really exciting to me and that I've then been able to apply for. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think to be clear um, or to be candid, this is especially true in biosecurity because within biosecurity, we don't have what this, what sort of uh, people who are more interested in sort of um, AI safety might have, which is the alignment forum or sort of lots of posts within the EA forum about biosecurity. Uh, and, and part of that has been out of an awareness of info hazards. Um, but that does also mean that there's like not a very good substitute for trying to learn a lot about biosecurity without speaking to people about it. Um, I think the fellowship that uh, that I mentioned earlier is like trying to substitute for that a little bit. Um, and I think we'll hopefully get towards it. But I think one of the best ways to get a sense of what you care about in biosecurity is to talk to a bunch of people about it, maybe like um, do the readings that like are online, like Tess's list of lists, be uh, try and um, sort of join reading groups or fellowships in, in these areas. And then there are also these schemes like Cherry and Seri, which run um, programs where you can sort of delve into research projects, which I think are like pretty cool, uh, like pretty cheap tests to see if biosecurity research uh, in particular would, would be exciting for you. And I think like uh, having spoken to some of the, the, the fellows from this year, some of their research is just like incredibly cool. Um, even though it's been a, a really short time span, um, they've been able to explore a lot. Um, and yeah, this is definitely something that I wish I'd had uh, when I first joined biosecurity in it. And I think it's a, it is a really cool opportunity. Yeah, building off what you just said, Janvi, there's a new kind of service in beta right now to set people up with career chats with biosecurity professionals that you can sign up for. And I'm sure we can put a link in the show notes for this. If Hopefully that trial is still going when, when this show gets at, when this podcast gets released. But, you know, even if it's not, I will say people are pretty available and pretty excited to encourage new folks in the field, I think, um, especially if you... I don't know, seem like the right mixture of enthusiastic and prudent. <laughs> uh, and and so I, I think you'll find that even if you just cold message people on LinkedIn, they're relatively available to talk to you. Uh, so es especially if you have some sort of, I don't know, concrete decision or prioritization that you're asking for advice about. I, I guess my advice to reach, for reaching out to um, for cold emailing people, which I, I do think, and cold LinkedIn messaging people, which I do think is a totally good thing to do, is that you will have, as a person who receives these messages, you will have more success if you have a, give a one sentence introduction to yourself, say why you mentioned the message, the person that you're messaging specifically, and then have some ask or thing that you want advice on, which could be quite vague, right? You could, you know, a totally good message I could receive from someone is like, you know, hi, my name is pick a random name, Rashad, and I'm an undergrad at this university. 
in this area. And I read this post and thought, now think biosecurity is important. And I'm trying to decide if I should, you know, invest more in my computational skills or try to find, try to transition towards having wet lab skills. And I'm not sure, would you mind having a call with me? And I'll probably answer yes. And to be honest, I actually say yes to most people who uh, message me. I probably shouldn't broadcast this on the public internet, but whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the only times when I don't basically are when I just, it doesn't seem like the person is at a point where they, there's an input for my advice that will make a difference to them. If they're just sort of wanting to talk to someone out of not wanting to explore this field on their own, then I would for, for now probably point them towards this chat with a biosecurity professional service, for example. Okay, so I think we need to start uh, wrap this interview up. So to close things off, uh, Janvi, what are three books, uh, bits of media, audio recommendations, anything that you would uh, yeah, recommend to listeners if they want to find out more about what we talked about here? Yeah, so um, I guess one of the things we talked about uh, a little bit is technical interventions. One report that I'm sure has been um, mentioned before on this podcast uh, is the Apollo report. Um, but I do think it's um, a very good outline of some of the uh, technologies we're most excited about pushing forward and that might be the most feasible to push forward in the sort of uh, next few years. Uh, and if you're more interested in sort of the early warning um, detection side of things, which is more my area at the moment, there's a really great report by the Council on Strategic Risks um, called Towards a Global Pathogen Early Warning System um, that I would recommend reading. Um, on sort of thinking a little bit more about bioweapons, I also really uh, personally enjoyed reading this book called Biohazard by Ken Alibak. Uh, Ken Alibak was um, actually, it, it's kind of a biography because this book describes the um, Soviet Union's um, bioweapons program. Uh, and it's written um, by Ken Alibak, who was part of running the program. Um, so I found it a really engaging, if not terrifying, read. Um, and then on synthetic biology and biology more broadly, um, I found uh, the series of lectures by iBiology. It's a YouTube channel, pretty useful of when I've not really understood a concept in synthetic biology, I've sort of often looked for it on iBiology and, and found a really useful video. I think Kevin Asphalt actually has um, some videos there on daisy chains. And then another sneaky recommendation for SynBio is this Twitter account um, by someone called Jake Wintermute, uh, which just has uh, quite quite a bit of sort of quite a few memes on synthetic biology. <laughs> Great. No, that that's an uh, awesome list of things that, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, include in our write-up. Um, Tessa, same question to you. Yeah, so if if you're a person who's maybe thought about biosecurity already and is already kind of bought into some of the normative effective altruist assumptions around catastrophic bio-risks, I would really recommend the book Biosecurity Dilemmas. Um, it's partly the kind of book that I'm biased towards liking because it's all about, oh, wow, these things are in tension with each other and everything's complicated and difficult. And I haven't, I think I have an intellectual bias towards liking books like that. You know, there's a Ben Golier book called, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. And I saw that title on a shelf and I was like, yes, I, I will be reading that. So Biosecurity Dilemmas is very in that mode. Uh, but I think if you want to get a bit more conversant, both with a bunch of really concrete examples from the past, you know, I think it came out in 2014, but, you know, the 15 years before that of, you know, interesting problems in biosecurity and health security, and also one maybe more of a play-by-play -play of how some of these debates have played out in the health security community. I, I feel like that book is a really great grounding. If you want to be enthusiastic about biology, I cannot strongly enough recommend several email newsletters about synthetic biology. Um, I am an email newsletter ad addict. These also exist on Substack. 
stack, you know, your mileage may, may vary, but I really like the century of biology. Um, I think I already quoted something from that. A few others, this is kind of cheating, but I, I'm going to cheat. A few others I would recommend. Uh, one is called Codon Magazine, uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, which is a really interesting and creative synthetic biology company in the US. They have their own magazine as well called Grow Magazine that comes out once a year and also has pretty interesting online content. Um, there's also a group out of San Francisco that is uh, called Neolife, and they have a newsletter where they tend to be a little bit more like, I sometimes describe myself as like a biotechno optimist with a side of, are we the baddies? And they have like less of that side of, are we the baddies? But they publish really good excerpts of like wacky, cool biology papers in their newsletter. So I'd recommend it. And then if I'm allowed to count the newsletters as a single recommendation, which is <laughs> highly dubious, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, the last thing I would recommend just as a really like foundation shaking thing in my own thinking about GCBRs is this report from the um, Center for a New American Security on Aum Shinrikyo, where the authors of the report, uh, Richard Danzig, I think is his name, actually went and interviewed members of this uh, Japanese cult that had uh, done the Tokyo sarin gas attack. So a big like non-state actor chemical weapons attack. And they had also had a bioweapons program. And it's a very like narrative story-based exploration of what is the sort of social environment that gets people to do things like build bioweapons and like spray them on the lawns of their enemies, which is a thing that they did. And I think it really shifted my own mindset where one of my big cruxes around worrying about JCBRs was like, surely someone who was competent enough to engineer something dangerous would not be stupid enough to release something that could kill a huge number of people in an untargeted way. And then I read about the story of this like really toxic social environment that was also an omnicidal death cult. And that really changed my beliefs. And I like how concrete the report is. It's really like detailed narrative reportage of, of how this came to pass. Great. Well, in that spirit then, uh, last question is where can people find you and what you're working on online? I will own... I'm trying not to do this reluctantly, but it's semi-reluctantly that I am pretty active on Twitter. Uh, so you can find <laughs> me on Twitter. Um, my handle is TessaFYI. Uh, I also post semi-regularly on the Effective Altruism Forum. So those that reading list and the list of lists of concrete biosecurity projects are both forum posts. Um, and you can also reach out to me at hello at Tessa.FYI, which is, you know, my, I don't know, my email associated with my personal website. Happy to answer questions there too. Great. And uh, what about you, Janvi? Where can people find you online? Yeah, basically the only place you can find me is on Twitter. Uh, I'm at JN underscore Ahuja. Um, some of the work that NAO is doing, the Nucleic Acid Observatory, is available on, on their website, which is launched relatively recently, which is what I'm um, sort of most connected to. Um, I'm sort of also on some other academic websites. Um, but I think Twitter is the best place to find me. And LinkedIn, as Tessa mentioned, um, in case you want to drop me a message. Great. Um, Tessa and Janvi, thanks so much for coming onto the show. That was Tessa Alexinian and Janvi Ahuja on Synthetic Biology. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Alexinian dash Ahuja. They'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. Uh, we really want to make this show better, so if you have any comments at all, please do email us at feedback at hearthisidea.com or click on the website to fill out our feedback form, but we'll also give you a free book for your trouble. Uh, if you want to support the show, then the best thing that you can do is leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to or tweet about us, both of which really helps others find out about the show. 
Uh, and if you want to help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason Cotrebidal, for editing these episodes and to Claudia Morehouse for making these transcripts possible. And thanks very much to you for listening.